In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee, heavenly King, O comfort of the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present to fill us all things, O treasure of a good and bestower of life. Come and dwell us, and cleanse the and save our souls, O good one. Sit down. Today we are going to move back after quite a few months to Elder Paisios. We've been doing Elder Porfirios, but I wanted to speak about logic, how people try to use logic to work out spiritual things, which is rationalism. But I don't want to make it too complicated because, one, I don't, you know, it's not really my style, plus I don't really... You know, I'm not into that type of, uh, going into that much detail. I want to make it simple so that people can uh, be benefited. By coincidence, if you can use the word, today, without me really realising it, is the commemoration date, or not the the day that Elder Paisios passed away. So uh, it turned out kind of... Uh, like a blessing that we actually return back to him now to on this for this talk, and it turned out that this is the day that he passed away in 1994. Someone asked the elder, "What is the place of reason and logic in the spiritual life?" And the elder said, "Which logic are you talking about? If you mean secular logic, like worldly logic." This kind of logic has no place at all in the spiritual life. Now, today, due to influence of Western society, because Western society is all to do with the mind, while the Orthodox East is to do with, the, with faith and the heart. Orthodox East and the Christian West we don't mix because of that reason. Because the Western church want to work everything out with their minds, and that's called rationalism. They try to rationalise. Try to Everything that they see, whether it's a miracle or they read something in the gospel which is like a supernatural uh, event, they always have to try or they try to work it out with their minds. But you see, spiritual... Uh, things cannot be worked out with the mind, but we understand it through faith where, and we obtain this faith by obtaining the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes when we are doing spiritual lives. So when the elder refers to logic and condemns it, he's not referring to the gift that God's given us because God's given all of us a brain, a mind. He's given us reason, so that we can work things out. Elder Pacers is not condemning that. When we're fixing something, when we build, when we create things, we are using our minds. So don't be silly and say, oh, the church wants to make us into robots or make us into dodos, that we just don't have a mind. But that's not what he's speaking about. He's condemning rationalism, or as he calls it, afflicted reason, in other words, sick reason or sick logic, the logic that is without faith in God. 
the definition actually of, ration, of, of to rationalise is trying to explain or make excuses using logic and reason uh, for divine things, for mysteries, for miracles, even for demonic phenomena. People try to say, oh, that's because of this, which we're going to see soon. I'm going to be going through a lot of that stuff. A miracle cannot be explained logically. It can only be experienced spiritually with faith. We should put faith first, not the mind, the elder says. Always put faith first, not the mind. When Elder Basio says mind, he means when we use human judgment, when we use our pride, our ego, when we have our self-trust and self-confidence. These demonic characteristics, if we use with, with, with our mind, just does not help us to work out or to understand spiritual concepts. I remember a young woman many years ago who she believed in her own mind, which a lot of people do, that she was a very intelligent person. And she said that when she came to the church, she felt that the church was telling her to deny her mind to be stupid, in other words. She actually said, and she would cry and cry and say to me, do you know what it's like to be intelligent and to have to deny your mind? And I said to her, firstly, I don't think you're a very intelligent creature because um, uh, some people are very intelligent, but in your case, I don't think you're really that intelligent. But her pride made her to believe, because she came not bad at school, that she was actually intelligent. Anyway. That's another story. But the, but the point here is that she was like possessed and she kept on saying that her mind is so great and that the church is spoiling everything for her because the church is telling her, be dumb, be silly, don't think. And what she would do, and I actually suffered with this person for quite a number of years, is that she would try to work out every single thing in her life with her mind. When you say, have faith in God, she couldn't do that. She had to work it out. She had to work out, say, I just say, well, just allow God's will to be done. And she answered me once with the most, in the most horrible way. She goes, but I'm not interested in God's will. I'm interested in my will. That's where it got to. That's how bad it got with her. And to this day, she's still suffering a horrible existence whereby she just does not have faith and she tries to work every single thing out in her life. And actually, Elder Paisio said that people who try to do that are just the same as those in psychiatric hospitals. Actually, the majority of those in psychiatric hospitals are there because of pride. Elder Porfirios and Elder Paisios and all our Holy Fathers believe that the majority, one can say, of mental illnesses comes from pride. And we all, when we do go into uh, this spirit of pride where we think we know everything, where we think we're better than others, etc., God allows us also to fall into mental issues. I have said in the past 
that today, because a lot of people are ruined from television, from school a lot of times, from universities, from the internet now, our minds have been ruined, it's very hard for people to lead spiritual lives. So a lot of times God allows these mental illnesses to occur because mental illnesses really humble a person. They're very humbling. Saint Ignatius, a saint, a Russian saint, said that when someone starts to lead a spiritual life, I've said this before, two things start coming out. The more one progresses in their spiritual life, the more, one, they see their passions, and two, they see their mental problems. But don't have this idea that if you're progressing in spiritual life, it means you have less passions and less mental problems. Actually, it's the opposite. The more one progresses towards God, the more God sends his light into our minds and souls, the more we begin to see ourselves. And that's actually a good sign. But some people say to me, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I feel that I've become worse. And that's what the devil comes along and says, oh, you're becoming worse. What's the point? Before you are in the church, you you were better, or we think we're better. And now that you're in the church, you're worse. But you see, this is what Elder Pace is trying to say. In the spiritual life, things are upside down. See, worldly-wise, we say a person's going well if they are progressing spiritually in that they, they've got strength over their passions, they're strong in their minds, that means that they're going well. While in the church, the church says, no, you're going well when these things start coming out and it will take many, many, many years for you to get over it. See, worldly logic, think differently to spiritual logic. So rationalism, in other words, trying to work things out, trying to work spiritual things out with your brain, with your mind, with your reason, at the worst level rejects divine providence denies the possibility of miracles, denies supernatural things, denies basically everything. That's at the worst level. So a person who has gone really, really uh, off is a person who doesn't believe basically anything, whether it's a demonic phenomena, whether it's spiritual things like holy things, miracles or whatever. They say, oh, no, I I don't believe any of that. Divine providence, what does divine providence mean? Divine providence is where God uh, intervenes in our life, where he, you know, someone might be um, going along somewhere and then suddenly his car breaks down and we don't know that the car broke down because if you went further on, there might have been a big accident that you were involved with. So God puts his hand in and intervenes, does things in our life. And the the more spiritual one is, the more one can see God's hand in our life. The less spiritual one is, they become really either, they don't see it all, or they might see it here and there. Actually, Elder Paisio said that he used to pray that when some miracles happen to people, that they understand that it's from God, because sometimes someone can be saved from something or something can happen and then they say, 
uh, oh, that's just happened. They don't actually say that was from God. So he used to pray and say, I want people to understand where God is in their life so that by seeing God in their life, they actually change their lives and become Christians and start to struggle. I'll give you an example. Once someone told me, person wasn't in the church, orthodox. He became deceived and one day he rang up a person to go to their place to have like a fortune telling type of thing. And the woman said to him, when you come, bring some flowers, bring some candles and bring, I think, um, maybe handkerchiefs. I don't, I don't know if I can't remember probably the story, but I know the flowers and the candles. So the person, and, and, and bring, of course, $100. So, um, um, so I would say the order would be the most important is the $100, then comes the rest of the stuff. So he, off he goes to the, those telebanks, whatever you call them, what are they called, ATMs, and uh, he... He used to use the ATMs continually, so there was no problem. So he puts his card into the ATM and then the ATM says, wrong pin. And he goes, oh, I can't remember it. And then he, tried, he goes, oh, right. He put, did it again and the ATM said, wrong pin. And then he did it again and all of a sudden the ATM ate his card. The card's gone. And then this person's kicking himself saying, oh, I want to go, I want to go to this place. He had such a mania to go to this place to think. But you see, that was God's intervention. That was God's providence because, as I told the person later on, candles and flowers is an initiation. It's like we Christians become baptised and become one with Christ. Well, candles and flowers offered at these places is actually like an initiation into the world of the demons. And that person, in a way, was going towards a, if you can use the word, I don't want to use it, but like a baptism, one can say, into the demonic world. And he forgot his pin. Never, never happened before. See? Now, that person uh, started to see that there was something there that maybe this was not meant to be, even though he was completely worldly. So that's what we say by divine providence. God, as we read in the service today where the priest says, for you are a good God. Now, we hear those petitions continually, but does it really absorb, does it really, do we really understand that God is good, that God is love, and that in our lives continually he's trying to help us and bring us closer and closer to him? It's just that we're dense because of our worldly life, from our distractions, that we cannot see him in our life help, trying to help us. That's called divine providence. So I'll read you a, little, a couple of things that I found just to show you. For example, the Domitian of the Mother of God. It says, when the Most Holy Mother of God was departing this life, the apostles were scattered throughout the inhabited world. I don't know if you know this, but the apostles were, went everywhere, in England, up towards Russia, 
others in, in India, all over the place, and they were preaching and bringing people to the church. But it came time for the mother of God to depart this life. And, um, and what happened was that a cloud miraculously brought all the apostles to the house where the mother of God was preparing for her departure into the next life. Now, obviously, that's a miracle. The, the, those who rationalise, those who try to use their mind, would say, ah, oh, well, that's symbolic, and that means that what happened was that the apostles found out that she was going to depart, and then they all came. They all started to make their way and come back to Jerusalem. So whoever was over in England or up towards Russia, which would take months to come back towards Jerusalem, that they were told. And how, how were they told? Through pigeons. How, how were they told? But you see, these people, that's why Elder Basra says they've got afflicted reason. In other words, they get to the point where they're stupid. And it takes faith to understand that. But there are even priests that have lost it who actually try to explain it logically. Another example, a person is writing, my mother was an old woman and she had a stroke. Before she breathed her last, she started trembling all over like a fish out of water. In other words, she started to go into like convulsions. We couldn't restrain her, we resorted to prayer. We said the paraclesis to the mother of God. As soon as the paraclesis started, she came down, she opened her mouth three times and gave up her soul calmly. People, doctors, those who are into these things with their minds, will try to work out that, oh, that's just part of the death process and uh, she was going to die anyway. It was by coincidence that she passed away at the time of the paraclesis was on, the meleben, as we say in Slavonic. Maybe some people here might think like that as well and think, oh, yes, that could be a coincidence, that could be a coincidence. Another one that Elder Paisios actually says, he says, I remember an elderly monk at a monastery on Manathos. He was very simple. He was so simple that he thought the ascension was the name of a woman saint. Now, the ascension is 40 days after Christ's resurrection, as we say in Greek, analipsis. The ascension is when Christ went up to heaven after 40 days. And this monk was so simple and he, didn't, he was not educated and he just thought that when he would hear the words holy ascension, he actually thought it was referring to a woman saint. And he used to pray on his prayer rope. Now the monks have the prayer ropes. And he used to pray, Holy Ascension, pray for me. Holy Ascension, pray for me. Saint of God, intercede for us. Once he had to feed a sick brother in the infirmary. You know, they have little areas which are for, for the sick monks. And he had nothing to offer him. So he went down the stairs, opened a window, 
overlooking the sea, stretched his arms out and said, Ascension, my saint, give me a little fish for the brother. And right away, as if by a miracle, a big fish jumped out of the sea into his hands. The others who saw him were astonished, but he simply looked at them smiling as if he were saying, what's so strange about what you have just seen? We may know, the elder says, or the poesio says, we may know everything about the life of martyrdom of the saints or about when and how the ascension took place, and yet we cannot even catch a tiny little fish. In other words, our faith is so lacking. So what if we've read all the books? So what if you've gone to theological colleges? I'm not ashamed to say that I don't, I don't even know the names of the 12 apostles. I, I get confused with it all. And I get confused with the other ones, which is um, uh, Saints James. There's all these James. I think one belongs to the 70, one belongs to the 12. I get confused with all those things. But I'm not going to... Well, I'm going to sit down and, like I used to learn my times tables in third class, to learn all the apostles... You don't have to memorise everything. You don't have to know everything. I even get confused sometimes with the stories in the, um, the Gospels. I get confused with different parts of it, even though I, we read the Gospel every day. But that's okay. That's, that's all right with me. I've got no problem with that because I'm not one who believes that I have to know everything. Because if I did, then I would be deceived. But there are people who want to know everything logically or want to memorise things of the church and they think that by doing that, that they are progressed. I'd rather have someone who has simple faith that doesn't know even what the Holy Ascension... Look, look at this person. If I've got trouble, if I need someone to pray for me, if I've got some spiritual disaster happening, whatever, and I need someone's prayers, I'm not going to go to someone who knows everything about the church in theory... I'd rather go to this person, even if he got mixed up about the Holy Ascension, but who has faith. And another story, which was a fantastic story, which is um, some lay people went to a monastery to visit... I can't, I can't remember fully the story anyway, but it's along these lines. They went there and there was a monk there who would be praying the Jesus prayer in Greek. And he would say... Lord Jesus Christ, oh, it sounds better in Greek, but it says, in Greek we say, and he would say, something along those lines, which means don't save me, don't have mercy on me. He got mixed up because he was simple and he didn't know how to say the words. So he actually would say, he would be praying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, don't have mercy on me from his confusion because he was simple and didn't know how to say it. And not all the monks, there are monks that are educated, but there are also uh, monks and nuns that go who are from the villages or just have never been educated. Elder Paisos only went up to around, I think, what was it, forgotten now, sixth class. Elder Porfirios went to around second class. So the... Monks or the lay people, I forgot who it was, said, no, no, you know, that's not how you say it. You say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. He goes, oh, is that how you say it? So how do you say it? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. He says, oh, okay. So off they go in the boat to go back to the mainland. And then suddenly, as they were in the boat going off, he comes the monk 
Now, some of you won't, won't believe it. I don't really care. I believe it, so I've got no problem. But some of you will believe it. Here comes the monk running on the water and saying, on the water, not swimming, running on the water, and said, how did you say it again? And then the, and the, and the, and the people in the boat said, just continue how you're saying it. Just continue how you're saying it. doesn't matter. You see? So we've got to be careful because we might see someone who we think is very simple and even saying wrong things, but they've got faith. So Elder Paisio says, there, these are the strange and, uh, and contradictory things of the spiritual life, which the reason of those intellectuals that are centred on themselves, those who proud about their minds and their thinking, and not on God, cannot explain. They can't explain these things, nor do they even believe a lot of them. Because their knowledge is of this world and sterile. In other words, their knowledge is like dead, in other words. Their spirit is ill with worldliness and their mind is void of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they do not have the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how much you read. It doesn't matter what you know. I've seen people who read and read and read books, but they read it with their minds, not with their hearts. And after a while, those people can become demonic. They become deceived because the devil comes along and says to them, look how much you know. The devil doesn't care if you read spiritual books as long as you're reading them in an incorrect manner. If you're reading them with your mind, he's okay. He'll even help you. But as long as you're not reading it with your heart. So that was the, that was, um, the examples there. With the um, that monk praying and the fish dropping down, some of those intellectuals can give some explanations. One can say, ah, oh, what happened was that a big bird came, swooped down into the ocean and grabbed the fish. And as they were flying over the monastery, then he saw another bird and said, hello, and then he opened his mouth and the fish fell. That's one explanation. Then another explanation can say that at Manathos, they had a visitor, Flipper came, you know, Flipper, and he got the fish and he used his nose and flipped it over, and hence the name Flipper, and flipped it out of the water and it landed, uh, I don't know how many metres away. Some would say, oh, there are some fish that fly because it's like flying fish. I mean, how much can they fly? This is the distance of the monastery to the water was quite a, a bit of a distance, but anyway. This is where you go into stupidities. Now, I've explained to you another time that I actually saw once a show which was called, I've, I've, I've talked about this, uh, Australia's Best Psychic. They also have one in America, America's Best Psychic. Now, a psychic is someone who can tell you things about your life, about your dead people or where things are or whatever. And they had this competition and they had there two people, one woman who was a psychic herself and another man who called himself a sceptic. And then they would have all these type of contests and they would hide something or 
make them say things about someone's past or have a partition and have someone behind there. They've got to work out things about that person, all this type of stuff. And a lot of times these people, not all of them, but a lot of them were getting things right. The psychic woman, of course, would say, I oh, see, this is, this is a special power that they've got. Now, the sceptic person would say, ah, uh, oh, yes, well, there's a lot of guessing there, and there's a lot of guessing, there's a lot of guessing, and that's guessing, and that's guessing, and that's guessing, and that's guessing. It got to the point where it was so stupid what he was saying in that some of the things that these psychics were saying was not just a guess, like they were even saying names of people that have died or whatever who... I mean, how much can you guess the name of a person that's died? Uh, your mother or your grandmother or whatever. And other things. And this person would sit there with his foot one over the other and would say, oh, this is guessing. Now, this is what's meant by afflicted reason. It's to the point where the person's lost his logic. Now, it's, people might say, oh, you tell us to believe in psychics. Psychics are people who have an ability given to them by the devil to be able to say things. These people don't know that. But nevertheless, that guy should at least say, because he doesn't know about devils, he doesn't know about anything, but at least he should say, that is quite amazing. How did that person know? At least get to that stage. How does that person know those things that no one else would know? But he didn't. He kept on saying, are guessing, that's guessing, that's guessing. So we can have people who rationalise holy things, but we can have people who rationalise also demonic phenomena, which I will read later on, some of those things. We have to realise that a lot of us, as Christians, we may not be at the level of this absolute rationalism, which is that we believe nothing about God and don't believe anything miraculous. However, all of us, including myself, because we are products of Western society, we do, at times rationalize, whether we know it or not. Sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. We try to work things out in our heads. How do we know that? It's when our heads go to burst a lot of times when we're trying to th work things out and understand things, and we can't. That's because we are using our minds. You can't grasp everything with the mind. An example was before I became a priest, I used to do some scripture classes at some schools. And I was, I went once, oh, not once, for, for quite a few months, I was going um, every week to a high school. It was a school for a lot of Greeks. I had uh, one period with year seven of 100 kids. Then the next period was a year nine with 100 kids. Then a year nine I was at a hundred, and then a year ten which was around a hundred. I had actually four hundred orthodox young students. But anyway, but one day they had the, the year eights. We couldn't use the hall because they were doing exams, so we had to go in a classroom. So off we go to a classroom, and I had all these 
year eights sitting in this room. There's quite a few of them. And I was doing the, t- the talk. Now, this year eight group had around four or five girls who were, something was wrong with them. And I would say most probably it was uh, sins of the flesh, as we say, sexual sins, because these people couldn't calm down. The sexual sins do distort our minds. They open us up to demonic uh, influence. These ones just couldn't calm down at all. Anyway, so I was doing the talk and um, I came up to the part where I wanted to discuss the holy light in Jerusalem. So I was discussing the holy light. We've got a book on that at the back. But the holy light, I don't, don't know if you know this, but every year on Holy Saturday in Jerusalem, the Greek Orthodox Patriarch comes in, he's searched, and the tomb of Christ is searched by officials, even the police. They check everything out. But before he goes into the tomb of Christ, in the main church, he stands on his throne and all the other religions have to come and prostrate themselves in front of him and kiss his hand. And they are the Coptics, the Armenians, I think even the Catholics. If they don't do it, they won't get the holy light. They must do it. This is one of the greatest phenomena in, in, in the world, that the holy light comes out only for the Orthodox. It's always been a Greek Orthodox too, by the way. And the other religions who are allowed to participate uh, by economy have to receive the blessing from the Orthodox Patriarch or they will not get the holy light. And then the Greek Orthodox Patriarch goes into the tomb, followed by one or two of the heretics. I think the Armenian, I think the Armenian Orthodox. Now the Armenian Orthodox don't like us, so if anything was done that was foul, they would they would expose it immediately. So the Greek Orthodox Patriarch goes in, kneels down in front of the tomb of Christ, where Christ resurrected, does some prayers. And then suddenly he's holding the candles which are bunched up in 33, 33 candles. I think he has two bunches usually. And the light, the holy light comes and lights his candles automatically. And then he comes into another part of the, of the sepulchre. There's a hole on this wall and there's a hole on this wall. He puts his candles out so that the Coptics can receive it. I can't remember fully. It's in the account there. And he puts his hand so the other ones can receive it. And then he, the doors are opened and then he comes out and all the Orthodox run to get the holy light. Now, some people, of course, can say, well, maybe the Armenian, I don't know, all this. But you see, God, when he does a miracle, he makes sure that it's without doubt. At the same time that the holy light comes into the tomb, in the big in in the holy in this what's called the, the, the church of the resurrection, it's a very big church, very very big, thousands of people present. People see flashes of light all over the place. Some say, "Oh, it's the cameras," but anyway, that's another thing. And there's the, there's lights flying everywhere, and some people's candles because they're all in the crowd waiting. Some people's candles, thirty three candles, light of their own as well. 
But that's just not enough because someone can say, oh, they, they quickly lit it. But not only that, uh, for the first few minutes of uh, uh, Nick's been there, uh, for the first few minutes of the holy light, the flame, which is which is coming from the thirty-three candles, which is very hot. I mean, look at this. I mean, put your hand there even for a few minutes, it will bu- it will burn. But this is thirty-three candles, so the flame is quite big. And I've seen a video, but Nick saw it personally, whereby people uh, have got the the thirty-three candles, this big flame. And are putting it on their face, on their hair. Priests are putting it in their on their beard, and they don't burn. People are putting it on their face and then smiling things like. And this only happens for the Orthodox. And then as soon as I said that to these Year Eight students, those girls um, started to hit their faces, and they started to go like that, and they were saying, oh, "No, no, no!" And they started to scream. And they just went, like, possessed, and I had to stop the lesson. The bell was going to go anyway. But I I sat there with much interest, looking at them, because the secret is that when you teach, you never act perturbed. You don't act like you're terrorised, because they like that. So you act with no passion. You just sit there and you stare at them. Usually they calm down. These ones ones were beyond. And they were hitting their face. They go, no, 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 no. They couldn't take it, and that's not exaggeration. They couldn't hear the words. But what does what does it bother them? But the holy light only comes out for the orthodox, and they're orthodox. What does it bother them? It didn't bother them. It bothered someone else, who had influence on them. Now, some might say, "Does you say that they're possessed?" No, the demons have influence on all of us. When we have bad thoughts, when we hate someone, when we have jealousy when we have blasphemous thoughts of unbelief. We all have influence. But sometimes some people, when they've given themselves over to a lot of sin, uh, drugs, sin, whatever they do in there, they actually can become, the demons have more power over them. But these ones went crazy. And then I went to another school. This time it was a, um, a year 11 girl again who... She went crazy as well, and she, and she got very upset because I said the holy light only comes out for the orthodox. And she started saying that I'm not a true scripture teacher and that I'm bad and I'm this and I'm that because I said that the holy light only comes out for the orthodox, which, which is a fact. So that helps us to understand that it's not just where we try to use our minds to understand things, but it's also... As Elder Baisio says, that uh, I think it's further on anyway, he says that when we try to use our logic, we actually give power to the devil to interfere with our minds, with our souls. Elder Baisio actually goes on and says another part where he says, um, where there is logic in the spiritual life, the grace goes away. It's like we're saying to the Holy Spirit, go away. Because we need God's grace to understand, to lead spiritual lives. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't do that. So when we try to use our logic, it's like we're saying to God, I don't want your grace to understand anything. I will work it out myself. And that's why the elder calls it demonic, this this type of uh, logic. 
so that was the story about the um, the holy light, and I really urge you to read the full account there because in that account at the back it says I saw the holy light. One a, a monk, a simple monk, he had he wanted to see what happens in the tomb when the when the patriarch goes in. So he devised this plan to actually hide in the tomb that no one could see him, and he and and explains in there what he saw the whole thing of the holy light. So it's actually was um, very interesting. But I really like that part. Now, some of you might say, if the Jews are present, because there's Jewish police there and officials, if the Catholics are present and the Coptics and the Armenians and all these other faiths are there and they see the holy light come in, and they see the miracles, and they see the flame not burning, they see all these things, why don't they believe? Why don't they become orthodox? Some do. However, the majority don't. Now, if you try to work that out logically, you might go crazy, but I'll help you. You just use faith. Why don't they change? Very simple, because of pride. Pride won't let them because they will have to say our church is wrong, which they can't do. Or I don't want to leave my church because that's my background, that's my culture, or that's my family, or whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, And that's the whole thing, is that those who are looking for the truth will run to the truth. Those who aren't looking for the truth, it doesn't matter. Just like in the time of, of the um, gospel, where Christ, where Christ um, rose from the dead, a lot of soldiers saw him. And what did they say? They said, uh, we fell asleep and his disciples came and they took him out of the tomb. And things like that. So what we read in the Gospels, don't think it's just of the past. It's not of the past. Those stories still exist today. From the outside, all things to do with the spiritual life seem upside down to those who lack faith or to those who haven't developed in their spiritual life. All of us will find that. Don't become disturbed and go, oh, what does it mean? Does it mean I'm an atheist? Or others will say, I want to work it out with my head. Why is this happening? And I'll give you an example that Elder Paisus himself said, which is a, a very good example, he said that they come to him and they, and they asked him once, why did the mother of God of the island of Tinos, which is a, an island in Greece, which has one of the most miraculous icons in Greece, which I've been, and this is the, um, a very, very miraculous icon. You know, like Russians have miraculous icons, Serbians have a lot of people... The, the Arabic countries have... But this is one of the biggest in Greece. It's the mother of God of Tinos. And they say to him that during, during the, um, the war, uh, why didn't the mother of God protect the boat, which they called it the Greek frigate Ellis, on the day of her feast? It was the, the feast was the 15th of August, 1940. And... Uh, the mother of the, uh, there was a feast of the mother of God, the big feast day there, and the Italians blew. I think they blew up the boat. 
this Greek boat. So these rationalists, the ones who think, go, well, why didn't the mother of God protect the boat? And Elder Bayesius said that after that happened, remember the Italians hadn't attacked Greece yet, because the Italians went on the side of the Germans, and later on the Italians came in and took over Greece. But that hadn't happened yet. This was on August the 15th, 1940. The Italians actually declared war on Greece and invaded a few months later on October the 28th. But Elder Paisio says, it was good that the boat blew up. It's good that the mother of God did not stop the boat of being blown up. She could have. But why? Because when the Greeks saw what the Italians had done, I don't really understand the history properly of how they blew up the boat. If they hadn't declared war, there might have been some sabotage. I'm not sure exactly. Anyway, he says here that the Greeks realised that the Italians would not respect anything. And they became, they, they started to have this zeal that they wanted to get rid of them. So that when they did later on declare war, they already were worked up for what they did to the boat. In other words, the Greeks were already emotionally, psychologically, spiritually more prepared. If the boat didn't blow up, they would have thought, oh, the Italians are like us, they're Catholic, they're religious, they're, they're, um, they believe like us, which is not correct, and therefore they're all right. They're not going to ever do harm to us. The Greeks didn't know they were going to take over, they were going to invade. But when they done it to the boat, they got really angry. And they said that they had such zeal that they would shout out aera, which means in Greek, like, be, uh, get blown away. That was their motto, get blown away. In other words, to the Italians. They wanted the Italians out because of what they did to the boat. So he says here, had the attack at, in Tinos not taken place, the Greeks might have thought, oh, the Italians are religious people like us, they are our friends. They would not have realised the measure of their impiety. And now these people come with their logic and ask, why didn't the mother of God perform a miracle? So there, one would have to be spiritual to understand the deeper meaning there. But the other people that go, oh, see, oh, the island's got this miraculous icon. If it's such a miraculous icon, well, why didn't it protect the boat? And I'm going to be reading you a lot of other things which will make our minds to... Uh, twirl around and that's my intention. I want that to happen. Let's read some of these things and see. I went through and found quite a few of them. Things which just, to, it sounds illogical. When you think of it with, with your mind, it just sounds really, really illogical. It says, St. John, as it's called the dwarf, St. John, began his ascetic life with an elder. The elder, in order to teach his disciple obedience, he got a stick, a dead stick, and planted it in the ground. And he said to his disciple, I want you to water that stick every day. Now, logic says the, this disciple should have said, but why would I water a stick? It's dead. You don't water dead sticks. But the elder... You see, this is when we read the life of Elder Porfirios. Remember, there were things that seemed illogical and 
the main thing of the elders were obedience. What, how did Elder, uh, Elder Paisios and especially Elder Porfirios obtain those gifts? Because of their obedience, because of their humility, because they let go of their will. And here, this example is another example. It says, John watered the dead wood with zeal for three years. And then it suddenly turned green and bore fruit. And the Holy Father say, this is the fruit of holy obedience. Now, logically, our minds cannot think, one, you might say, oh, well, you know, he watered it. But if someone, when sometimes we hear things that are illogical from the church, we want to reject it. Or when the priest tells us something, we want to reject it. Or when we read something, we want to reject it because we don't understand it. And that disciple could have rejected is what his elder said and lost out. But he didn't reject it. He listened. And at the end, it grew, not that it was important that it grew. The most important thing was the obedience. And another example there was a bishop who was, he was 10 years a bishop, after which time he realised that worldly honours were hindering him in his spiritual life because bishops receive a lot of respect, especially if in, back in the Byzantine times, bishops had a lot of power and a lot of respect. And he didn't like that, this bishop who was one for 10 years. He felt that the... the the praise he didn't like and the honour, he said it was, it was disturbing his spiritual life. So he left his throne, he left his diocese secretly, put on just ordinary monk's clothes and he went to the monastery of St. Savas the Sanctified, which is in Palestine, in Jerusalem, near Jerusalem. And he, they didn't know he was a bishop. He was given the task of collecting and carrying wood and cooking lentils for the workmen. So logically, someone would say, well, why, why would he do that? Why would he leave his diocese? Why would he dress up like a monk? So he won't get proud. Actually, I was speaking to someone the other day and they said to me that pride, that we only fall into pride because we allow ourselves to fall into pride, something along those lines, and that it's easy not to fall into pride because we have to want not to fall into pride. Some along those lines, which the person does not have understanding of spiritual life. Now, St John Chrysostom, for example, he did not run away from his diocese. He stayed in his diocese. And he was doing all these sermons and helped a lot of people. But so what happened to him? How come he didn't get pride? Because God allowed persecutions to occur. And if you read the life of St. John Chrysostom, you'll see that he was treated really badly. He was exiled. The soldiers that were taking him to, his, to, the, to where he was exiled, this great man who was called St. John Chrysostom, in other words, Golden Mouth, this great hierarch whose books we've got so many of them today, was taken on like a donkey or horse without a saddle and the soldiers were really rough to him all the way, such that he died uh, before he, I think, even reached where he was going to be exiled to. He suffered. So God allowed that to happen because we all can have pride because it's subtle. It comes in us without us really realising it. 
this bishop, he left. When he was discovered that he was a bishop, he shut himself in his cell and lived there for 47 years on cabbage. That's it. Now, logically, I would say, and I must admit that when I read this years ago, I'm a bit, I'm all right now about it, but years ago when I read it, I just couldn't understand why. And I'm sure some of you will be saying to yourself, why? Another one here. At her death, Blessed Ephrosini said to her son, whose name was Clement, do me honour my son and stand for Christ as a man and confess him with strength and steadfastness. Fear neither threats, nor the sword, nor wounds, nor fire. Nothing can separate you from Christ. May this be my reward from you, the mother said, my sweet son, for the pain of giving you birth, for the care that I did for your upbringing, that I be known as the mother of a martyr. This is during the time of persecutions. The blood that you receive from me, don't spare it. Let it be spilt. That will give me honour. Give your body to martyrdom that I may rejoice at, the, at that before the Lord as though I myself alone suffered for him. In other words, this mother is telling her son to die a martyr. That would be the greatest honour for her. Again, logically, would a parent do that of today? Not only to even... Even not even to become a martyr, because that doesn't really exist, say, like, let's just say here in Australia yet, but let's just say a, a child who says to its whose mother, I want to become a monk or a nun, someone become a, a priest. Some parents become like crazy. So, or someone who says, I don't want to go to university, I want to dedicate myself to serving the church or something like that. Again, parents don't like that. So it's not, you know, they might say, oh, this sounds outrageous, but in today's world, these things happen. A monk came to a church in Alexandria, that's in Egypt, and saw a woman kneeling before an icon of the Saviour, weeping and crying out to God. And she was saying, Thou hast abandoned me, O Lord, have mercy on me, O merciful one. When her prayer was finished, the monk asked the woman, Who has wronged you that you are complaining so bitterly to God? The woman answered, Until now... No one has wronged me, and for that reason I am weeping since God has abandoned me and has not visited me with any suffering for three years. In other words, she was complaining to God that no one's gone against her, no one said anything bad to her, nothing's happened to her. During this time, neither my son has ever fallen ill, neither has anything happened to my cattle and my chickens, nothing. Everything's going well. And she was praying to God and saying, you've abandoned me. Now, logically, what, what, what do we say? We say, oh, no, but that's the best. It's, when nothing's happening to us, uh, that means that God is pleased with us. Actually, a lot of our saints say, when you see someone have nothing happen to them in their life, cry for them because it means that God has forsaken them. See, opposite to what we think with our minds. The following incident is another one which sounds illogical. The following incident is recorded. An old ascetic and a, and a known spiritual teacher was dying and called the priest to give him the holy mysteries. So this is a very famous and holy ascetic. And he was dying. He asked the priest, 
I want to, I want to commune. Along the way, a robber, a thief, found out about this person that was going to be that that was dying, and he wanted to go to see how a holy person dies. So the robber went to the place where this ascetic was dying. The holy elder made his communion in peace and conversed peacefully with the priest. Then the robber burst into tears and cried, How blessed are you! But what sort of death will I, will I have, being that I'm a thief, a robber, etc.? That's what he said to the ascetic. The holy elder, suddenly captured by the spirit of pride, answered him, Be as I am, and it will be the same for you as it is for me. The robber returned along the road weeping and lamenting for himself and fell down and died. The robber died. A certain fool for Christ, a holy person, who, like St. Xenia, was acting like a fool, and this is a fool for Christ, came and was seen by the people weeping. The fool for Christ was weeping over the elder, but dancing and singing over the body of the robber. When they asked the, the um, fool for Christ the reason for his behaviour, he said, the one was lost through pride. He lost everything that he had earned over his, all the years of struggling. And this one, the robber, reaped the fruits of repentance and was saved. In other words, the ascetic was lost, lost paradise, and the robber, because he cried before his death and then died suddenly, was saved. When I used to read this, it doesn't disturb me now, but years ago when I used to read this, this, this used to spin me out. I used to get very disturbed and say, but how can it be? Because of one proud thought, he lost. And a lot of you will think the same. He lost everything. Isn't that unfair that he was an ascetic for so many years? He helped so many people. He was such a holy person. And this robber that just had a bit of repentance and tears, and all of a sudden he was saved and the other one lost his soul. Did you want me to explain the, that? I'm not. I'm perfect. On purpose, I want you to go home and I want you to think about it. If you feel that your head's going to explode, it means you're using logic. If you feel calm about it and you're humble, then God will enlighten you. I can, I can explain it, but I don't want to yet. Next time. Remember the, the symptoms, as Elder Paisu says, spiritual headaches. When people try to use logic, their heads become like they're going to burst. When people use faith then God will enlighten them and help them to understand. It does sound, it sounds very unfair. This is unfair, logically. Doesn't it sound unfair? One proud thought, what's going to happen to all of us? Some, of, some people say to me, well, if that happened to him and he was holy, what's going to happen to us? And they fall into hopelessness. And for the purpose of an exercise, I will allow that to happen, but... Remember one thing, as the older says, you don't have to understand everything. Who are you to understand everything? Who am I to understand everything? I read you one thing, which to this day it still bothers me, um, but I don't 
I, I can't understand it, but I don't become hopeless about it because I'm limited, so therefore there's obviously a meaning to it. I just don't know the meaning. Which one is that one? Let's have a look. You have to learn to accept when you don't understand something in the spiritual life and understand the following. I'll say it again. It is demonic. It is really proudful to expect to understand everything in the spiritual life. That's what I want you to learn today. A devout elder was lying on his deathbed. His friends were gathered around him, weeping for him. The elder laughed three times. The monks asked him, why are you laughing, elder? And the elder replied, I laughed the first time because you are afraid of death. I laughed the second time because you are not ready for death. And the third time because I'm going from toil, in other words, from suffering and struggles, to rest. Now, some of you might say, what, what's the confusion? Well, to me, I don't understand the laughing part. Like, what's, why is he laughing? He can, it's like, is he laughing at the monks? Is he putting them down because they're afraid of death? Is he putting them down because they're not ready for death? And, is he, and why would he be laughing? Because he's going from toil, from struggle, to rest. Personally, I don't understand that. But that's okay. Humility. Humility says you don't have to understand everything. God gives when it's time. If it's good for our souls. Another example, returning once on the path to his cell, Macarius the Great saw a robber carrying his things out of um, his um, house and loaded them onto a donkey. Macarius said nothing to him and even helped him to get everything loaded, saying to himself, we brought nothing to this world. Another elder, when robbers had taken everything from his cell, looked around and saw that they had left a bundle of money which had been lying hidden somewhere, so he quickly took up this bundle and called to the robbers and gave it to them. Again, a third elder, finding the thieves in the act of take, stealing from his cell, called to them and said, hurry, hurry, don't let the brothers find you or they'll stop me fulfilling Christ's command, which is, of him that take us away thy goods, ask them not again. In other words, don't ask for them back. So some people read that and go, oh, does that mean if someone comes to our house, we let them steal them? See, straight away, the, the, how does this relate? Here, the three examples of St. Macarius the Great and the other two monks actually helped and even covered up the crime and said to the, oh, look, here's some more stuff there, some more stuff, take it. Take, take, take it, we take all of it. So in other words, what do we do now? We open our houses up at 12 o'clock and wait to see people with balaclavas walking around the street and say to them, come, come inside, come in my house. There's my stereo. There's my, um, there's my, my children's PlayStations there. Come and take it all. See, but doesn't that what it says? It says, we've brought nothing into this world. Another part here which says, of him that takes away your goods, don't ask for them back again. That's what the Bible says. Would you like an explanation? No. I want you to go home 
and I want to, I want you to come back next time and I want you to tell me how your head became. <laughs> Did you feel like it was going to explode, right? That's, the, that's what I want to see. And if you've got problems, we'll widen the doors of the church so that you can enter if your head really becomes um, bloated from thoughts and, and, and things like that. And we do. Good, very good lesson. Um, let's have another one here. St. Nymphon saw the soul of one sinner repenting at the last moment, saw how an angel defended it from the bullying demons and carried it to paradise. So there was a person who was sinful, he was dying but repenting, and then this saint saw an angel fighting the demons that were trying to take the soul of this person. Of course, the intellectuals, even theologians of the church, can say, oh, well, that's symbolic. It means that the person's wrestling with his, I don't know, with his life or something like that, and they try to work everything out in their heads. You'd be surprised of how many people today don't believe a lot of what the church has for us. The, so that's one example, and it says, The church teaches that suicide is a mortal sin. St. Nymphon, on another occasion, saw the soul of a suicide being dragged down to hell by the devil, while the guardian angel of his soul went off weeping bitterly. This was the soul of a servant who had committed suicide because his master was merciless and he was not willing to endure to the end and be saved. Again, this can cause someone to spin out and say, well, you know, that person was a slave, of a master who was horrible. This master had no mercy on this person and this person couldn't take it and he committed suicide. Now some people again use in their minds and say God's unfair because he lost his soul because he couldn't take something which was hard. That's another one which people find difficult to understand and we will come to that at a later date. A saint had a very sensitive conscience. Remember that when we do sins, we hardly feel guilty, but when the saints do sins, they feel guilty. See, the more one progresses, the more one becomes closer to God, the more one feels their sins, feels their pain. And today there is a problem that people do the worst of sins but don't feel them. They don't feel pain for them. Maybe intellectually they understand... I've done something wrong, but they don't feel it in their heart. It is said of a certain elder Daniel um, that some highwaymen, you know, like people that wait on the roads and attacked him on three occasions and took him off into the mountains. On two occasions he was rescued, but on the third time he tried to escape, and while he was trying to escape, he struck one of the um, thieves with a stone and killed him and then made his escape. This is an elder. That murder lay on his conscience like a lead weight. So in his confusion, his perplexity as to what he should do, he went to Timothy, the patriarch of Alexandria, which is in Egypt, and asked his advice. The patriarch uh, soothed him and released him from all penance and said, no penance, it was an accident, don't worry about it, you know, God forgives, don't worry. Because, you know, in the church we have what's called penance. A penance can be you don't commune for one year, two years, three years, four years, whatever. You've got to do prostrations and fasting 
and even if it's an accident, if it's an accidental death, you know, things like that, which we'll come to that later on anyway. But his conscience still bothered him. So he went to Rome to the Pope before when they were with us. Up to the 11th century, the Pope was part of the Orthodox Church. This has happened in the first, I don't know what century, this sounds like about maybe 4th century. So it says that he went to the Pope and uh, the Pope gave him the same reply as had the other patriarch and still dissatisfied, Daniel visited the remaining patriarchs in turn. He went to Constantinople, he went to Antioch, and he went to Jerusalem, confessing to each of them and asking for advice. But he could find no peace, so he returned home to Alexandria and declared himself to the authorities as a murderer and was flung into prison. At his trial before the governor, Daniel told them how, how everything had happened and pleaded that he might be killed, executed so that his soul might be saved from eternal fire. The governor was amazed at the whole thing and said to him, go your way, Father, and pray to God for me, and even if you kill seven more. You know, in other words, I was so impressed by him that even the, the law said, don't worry about it. Still dissatisfied with this, Daniel resolved to take a leper into his cell and care for him until he died and then find another leper when that person died and take care of him, etc. He did as he had resolved, and in this way brought peace to his conscience. Now, some of you will say, but if we've done something wrong, like an abortion or killed someone or something, and we confess, don't we receive forgiveness? And the answer is that it depends on our repentance, but the church has always given penances to help the person, or because a person comes to confession, it doesn't mean that he's repented properly. So what the church says, the spiritual father says, okay, you fast, you do prostrations, you give money to the poor, uh, you don't commune for so many years, you don't do this, you don't do that, so that the person slowly, slowly can come more and more to repentance. But today, in a lot of churches, there's no such thing as penances. And some churches that don't even do confession properly, they just read the prayer and say, oh, just go and commune woman does an abortion and then all of a sudden she goes to the priest and the priest says, okay, are you sorry? Yes. Okay, you can commune tomorrow. And I have read somewhere um, in, in that it's um, all because the priest, if he doesn't give you a penance, sometimes you can impose a penance on yourself to say, well, I want to abstain for a while from communion. I want to do things I want to pray more, I want to fast, I want to uh, struggle more so God can give me more repentance, proper repentance. Today this is a problem where penances hardly exist and even for very serious sins. People go and commit adultery, husband goes with another woman and then comes and confesses and the priest says, oh, well, don't do it again, you can commune tomorrow. You know, these things are just ridiculous. Anyway, that's, um, that's another example there. And one more. I love this one, yeah. It says here that um, when a devout widow named Cleopatra had built a church to St. Varos, was that, I think that's how you say it, she invited the bishop and clergy to consecrate the church. So this woman, she was a widow, pious woman, and she built the church to, to, in, in, in honour of St. 
virus or something. A great many Christians gathered for the festivities, for Saint Varus was venerated in the uh, in the whole neighbourhood as a great healer and wonder worker. So he was a, like in this particular area. This was a famous saint. After the service, this devout benefactress went up to the relics of Saint Varus in the church and she prayed to him herself. I beg you, you who endured suffering for Christ, ask of God that which is pleasing to Him and help. And, and help to me and my only son. Pray for what's good, what's beneficial for myself and for my only son. Cleopatra had a son, John, who had just gone into the army. As soon as she had left the church, her son, who had been in good health till then, fell ill. He was seized with a burning fever and his state became worse and worse until he died at about midnight. The angry and grief-stricken mother came to the grave of St. Varus and spoke really sharply to him and said, O man of God, do you call this helping me? And she said much more in her bitter grief, then being greatly exhausted, fell into a light sleep. Suddenly, St. Varus appeared to her, accompanied by her son, John. They both shone like the sun and they were like dressed like in, like in clothing that was white as snow and they had golden girdles and things like that, wearing splendid reefs on their heads, crowns. The saint said to her, didn't you yourself pray to me to beg of God whatever was pleasing to him and of help to you and your son? I prayed to God and he, of his unspeakable goodness, has taken your son to his heavenly army. So in other words, the saint prayed to God because the saints can't do nothing without God's permission. Even when we pray to them, we pray to them to pray to ask God for us, but they can't give us anything unless God permits it. So when this saint prayed, asked God and said, this woman's praying to me for what's good for her and her son, God decided what's good for her son was that he dies. If you want him, here he is, take him and put him in the army of some earthly king because he was in the army. Hearing these words, the young John embraced St. Varus and said to him, my Lord, don't listen to my mother and don't send me back into the world that, that, sink, of, that um, sink of unrighteousness and iniquity from which you have taken me. Rousing from the dream, Cleopatra felt a great joy in her heart and went joyfully out of the church. She lived for seven years near the church and St. Varus together with John appeared to her often. So one would hear this, read this and say, oh, yeah, I can see that he was saved and he was in this heavenly light, but I'm not going to pray anymore for my children in that way just in case God takes them. And you'd be surprised to that let a lot of people do that. So there's one as well which causes confusion. So I read all these accounts from the Yerondiko, as it's called, the Holy Fathers, Saints of the Holy Fathers, and... I think you would find that um, some of them were difficult to understand and some of them cause what's called spiritual headaches because you just say to yourself, what's going on? Are there any questions before our break? Yes. 
There's no what? Coincidence. Your question is that is there such thing as coincidences and when we meet people or when something happens, can we say all this was from God? Uh, well, of course, we read in the gospel that it says not a leaf falls from a tree without being God's permission. The only problem is that some people, uh, because of mental issues, they actually begin, they become like a bit disturbed and they think that that happened, that, and that happened, that, and they start to try and work everything out in their heads and try and interpret things, and they can become quite sick. So when we read these things, we're talking about people who are progressed spiritually, who are able to some degree to understand where God is intervening in their life. Um, what I'm trying to say is that people that have got that are a bit weak in their minds, they can, they, can, they can become better later on. But let's just say at a certain stage, like, for example, you know, the candle falls over and then they say, what does that mean? And they try and work out all these things and their head becomes big as well. You know, they just become all sick and they go, what does it mean? Oh, the apostles are not happy with me or this or that. And they get all confused, you see. While a progressed, a progressed person um, can just ignore it or they might understand something you know it's it's we have to be careful of our level of where we are so yes um god does intervene in our life continually but due to our sins and our and our lack of spiritual enlightenment it's hard for us to understand what these are. We, that's why when the more we progress spiritually, the more we become humble, the more we begin to see God's hand in our life. When you try and make interpretations of everything, you can become mentally worse, especially if you've already got a mental issue, and not you, I'm talking about in general, and it can become dangerous. So um, it's a good question, and uh, but... From my experience, we have to be careful, especially if our minds are weak, because then the devil comes along and he does things on purpose, makes the light turn off, do something, and then he says, oh, what does that mean? It means that, you know, you've been good, you've been bad, you've been this, then you just go crazy. You've got to just be doing simple life, and as, as time goes on, we begin to see, but when we, become, when we have the humility then we can see something and say, oh, you know, when we, when, when we look at these, the, old, the old-fashioned people, the ones that have had a lot of faith and some holy people that you meet, and you see that when they say something like, oh, thanks God that that, that, that happened or whatever, but they say it in such a simpli- with simplicity as part of their life, but they're not becoming inflated with pride because God has come into their life and done something, but with a lot of people today, because of the pride, they begin to think that they're special, that, oh, you know, this happened. That's why a lot of time God does not allow them to see that he's even doing something in their life because of the pride that they get. We're very sick that way. So that's the danger. I hope I answered that. Any other questions?
about what's science because it's you said that the Catholic Church has um, basically said that a lot of the saints that they have, even saints that were before the schism, saints that are like St. Nicholas and St. Catherine and Saint, some of the old saints that we recognise as well, they actually have taken them and said, oh, you don't have to believe in them because the miracles and the things that occurred in those lives were so, in their minds, far-fetched that their people couldn't really believe them. So they said, oh, you don't have to believe it. That's the stage that they've got to. But we've got to be careful because this rationalism has crept into the Orthodox Church and there are Orthodox Christians, theologians and even priests who do think like that as well. Which I'm going to read you something later on to, to you and, you and you'll see. Okay, anything else? That's a good question too. So is, is the question being asked is if, say, you're a parent and all of a sudden a child had an accident got hurt, do we blame ourselves? Do we say, well, again, as I said to Elisa before, that it's hard for us to interpret whether it was due to some sins. That's another thing which spin people out as well, is that the sins of parents can affect the children. The curses of parents can affect their children. And people say that's just unfair. Even clergy say, oh, no, no, God is, God is love. He can't do that. But we'll see in orthodox um, in books that this is true. Now, again, we don't know because of our lack of discernment whether the child's accident was because of a sin of ourselves, was it something that God was trying to spare the child or maybe to, to humble the child or maybe to make the parents more conscious of themselves and struggle more. There's a lot of, lot of reasons. It's, as I said, when we're not really spiritually progressed, it's very hard to understand things. So what we do is we just thank God that worse didn't happen and we just continue to pray, asking God and blame ourselves, even if you have to blame ourselves, but not with hopelessness and say, well, you know, if I was more zealous, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But remember, accidents can occur as well because it's, it's not because of our sins, but because it's good for our souls. So it's hard to understand. But in general, we, we have to ask God to protect our children, to help them, etc. When things happen, it's hard to understand whether it's because of our sins, whether it's because we're slack, whether it's something to do with the child. It's just hard to understand. And it's better in the beginning of spiritual life not to delve into those things too much because it can make us uh, mentally uh, sick and spiritually sick when we try, because we're using our brain to try to interpret everything. Does that help you? Mm -hmm. um. Say it again, the example of?
There can be a lot of interpretations. If he didn't bust his knee, then it could have been, and that confined him, he could have actually been on the verge of falling into a sin with someone or doing something wrong. You know, you don't know. There's a lot of things. But obedience, the most important thing is, even for our children and in general, has to be what's called willing obedience. When we're obedient, we're obedient because we want to be obedient, not because we're forced to be obedient or not because we are scared or not because we think that's the way it should be. Like, but when I see someone who says to me, oh, Father, tell me, tell me what to do and I'll do it, and then you tell them, and later on after a while you start to pick up that they're only doing it because they want to m- make you happy or they think that you're going to be upset with them or they think that that's the way it is. What I do with those people is I pull away. Because they're not being obedient willingly, they're being obedient for the wrong reasons. And after a while, those same people who say, oh, you're the best, you're the best priest, you're fantastic, and I'll listen to you, become basically to the point of possessed, where they actually hate your guts and become quite dangerous. So obedience has to be willing. When we hear this person, his elder wasn't there with the whip and saying, you've got to water that stick, Right? But he said, water the stick, and that person with that. We see the life of Elder Porfirios, that everything that he did, he did willingly. He wanted to be obedient. We have to cultivate in our children that we want them to be obedient to us, not because they're scared of us, but because they love us. When we want our wives to be obedient, the husbands, for example, they want their wives to be obedient, as St. Paul says, yes, the wives are obedient when the husband is full of love, taking care of the woman. When the husband, for example, doesn't work or the husband doesn't even take care of the family or the husband's a slob and then he sits there and he says, I want you to be obedient to me. How can she be obedient unless she's really progressed? Some of them exist, but most women and most people are not that progressed to be able to be obedient to a slob, right? And you hear this from men. I want my wife to be obedient. I've even had... I've even had men come up to me and say, speak to my wife and tell her to be obedient. <laughs> right? And I say to them, um, I don't mean to be rude, but uh, how can your wife be obedient to you when you're not even obedient to anyone? I remember this man where I had a, a husband and wife. They both confessed to me. The man would never be obedient didn't listen to anything that I ever said. And then he would say to me, my wife's not obedient to me. And I said to him, serve you right, because you are not obedient to anyone. How, do you, how can she be obedient to you? And why should she be obedient to you? So this is the, this is the different. Yes, it says, St. Paul says, Women, be obedient to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives to the point that your love is so great for your wife, St. John Christum says, that you are willing to cover their faults, not to publicise them to everyone, that your love for your wife is so great that you are willing to die for her. That's how much you've got love for her. When you've got that love for your wife and you have got that and your wife's not obedient, then yes, I'll talk to her. But unless you've got that love, that you take care of your wife and help her, etc., etc., then to ask that obedience is just to the point of 
demonic. It's sick. So that's it. The breaks is uh, we're ready for our break. We'll have a um, about um, ten minute to fifteen minute break. Odopoisios continues on where he speaks about theologians. He says, some modern theologians will spend their time on such things, like, for example, they may ask, did the demons that fell into the sea survive or drown? You know, in the Gospel, it talks about the the Jews that um, had some swine, some pigs, and then when Christ came and then um, he made the demons to go into the um, swine and then the swine ran off the cliff and the pigs drowned. And they say, did the demons that fell into the sea survive or drown? This is what some people, how they intellectualise and try and think of things. And then the elder says, the important thing is, is that they left the man who was possessed. Why are you so concerned with what happened to the demons? Make sure that you don't get possessed yourself and don't bother with the demons, where the demons are now. And this is what a lot of modern theologians do. Protestants do the same. Um, I mean, them we understand because they haven't got the fathers. But it's very proudful to delve into things. Elder, some people are trying to reconcile the gospel with human logic. In other words, they're trying to say that the gospel can be worked out logically. They examine the gospel with secular logic and cannot make any sense of it. And the elder says the gospel and secular logic cannot be reconciled. This doesn't mix. In the gospel, there is love, while in secular logic, there is self-interest. The gospel says if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Where is the logic there? So where Christ says, if someone makes you go or tells you to go one mile, he goes, you go an extra mile. If someone steals something from you, don't ask for something back like we read before. This is madness, the elder said. When you look at it logically, it's madness. This is why those who try to reconcile the gospel of secular logic find themselves in utter confusion. You see, people say we have to try and make the Bible understandable to people. But why was the gospel written in such a way that it is hard for people to understand using their minds? Because the gospels, the Bible is divine, it's holy. And because it's holy, we need faith to be able to read it. If God made the gospels to be able to be understood logically, then what's so special about them? They're not maths books, they're not physics books where you can understand with your mind. That's why the Bible is full of things that cannot be understood except with faith. There was... um, He also says somewhere else where he says that... I I can't find it now, but he said that some theologians, some people think about... When Christ was crucified, were the two legs together or were they separate? So they say, oh, that's orthodox, that's Catholic, this and that. And then Elder Paisus says, what does it matter if the legs were separate, the legs were together? He says, what's the most important thing is that Christ died for our sins and through his sacrifice we can be saved. That's the most important thing. What does it matter 
whether there was two nails or one, or one nail, two nails, etc., etc. So this is what people involve themselves with and have all these discussions and, and do Bible studies and try to work things out with their minds. And I'll give you an example of this, which is a horrible example. Many, many years ago, I was corresponding with a... Um, I think he was a priest, priest monk, but he was an educator. He went. He was from university. Didn't study actually theology, but he studied other many subjects. So he was a, he was an intellectual. Uh, I wanted to get some information on the um, Seventh Ecumenical Council, which is the council which dealt with the icons. There were those who said the icons are idols and we shouldn't venerate them. And they used to burn them and destroy them and kill those and torture those or exile those who used to venerate them. And, and um, there was those who venerated them. And I wrote to him some things and I said to him that um, a lot of miracles occurred during the time of the seventh ecumenical or during the time of the iconoclast period. And uh, like um, icons that were that miraculous things, the the um, the, uh, the miracle of St. John of Damascus with where he was slandered and the, the Arab ruler cut off his hand and then he prayed in front of the mother of God and then his hand was restored. Then he, put a, he made a silver hand on, on that icon, which is called of the three hands, which is now in the monastery, the Serbian monastery of Hilanda. And a lot of these miracles occurred and he said to me that we shouldn't put in uh, when we're talking about the Seventh Ecumenical Council, we shouldn't mention the miracles because we should only talk about the theological things. And I got quite um, disturbed about it and I said, I don't understand what he's talking about because even in the First Ecumenical Council, which dealt with whether Christ was God or just man, four miracles occurred, even within the council. One was by St. Spiridon where he said to Arius, who believed that Christ was only a man, and he said, if, you, if you're correct, make this stone to become, uh, uh, to become water and sand and things like that. And then he couldn't do it, and then St. Spiridon said, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And then the, the um, what was it again that was the... It was a tile. The tiles, the tile. Um, and it became uh, water and sand and, and fire. And then he said in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit again, and then it came back again. And there was another miracle of St. Nicholas, whereby he, he um, slapped Arius in the face, and then they were going to uh, defrock him, and then Christ appeared, Mother of God, etc. And there's a third one, which was, that was the stone, sorry, which was the uh, miracle of St. Achilleos of, I think, Larissa, whereby he made a rock to secrete oil. And, then, and from these miracles... And through the theological discussion, then they, they um, came to the conclusion that Christ, which is what was always believed, that Christ is God. And in the Seventh Ecumenical Council, there was a lot of miracles that occurred, not just during the council, but during those years. This particular person was saying to me, we shouldn't take an of them and just look theologically. Remember, when Christ preached, it says that he preached... And when the apostles also, when they preached, and they did signs, miracles, to confirm their preaching. Orthodox is not just preaching, but it comes together. Through the preaching, we also have the miracles to help people come 
to understand that those words that have been said are true. Anyway, this person just wanted to look at the dogmas and the theological writings and he didn't want to talk about nothing to do with the miracles, etc. Later on, I found out that his brain had become so lost that he um, cut himself away, didn't even go to the services, didn't pray. All he wanted to do is read, discuss, use his brain. And later on, he lost himself so much, and that's because of his pride. And he just he was rejecting the holy, the, the miracles and the signs that happened in, in, in our church. Didn't like it. I even, I even once sent him um, an article, and I said to him, can you just make sure that this is written in the correct English? And it was an article, and he wrote back to me, he goes, oh, this article's not theologically correct. And I wrote back and I said, this article is from St. Nikolai Velimirovitz. He's Serbian. He goes, oh, I didn't know. That's what's called rationalism. When you try to work things out in your brain and you're not doing a spiritual life and this is what can happen to someone. So that is very, very dangerous. The Holy Fathers saw everything in a spiritual way, Elder Paisio says. All the texts of the Fathers were written in the Spirit of God and it was with the Spirit of God that the Holy Fathers gave their interpretations with the Holy Spirit, not just with the mind. Today this spirit is lacking and patristic texts are hard to understand. People don't understand much anymore, the Holy Fathers, because they lack the grace of the Holy Spirit because the grace of the Holy Spirit does not come to someone who is proud. The more we humble ourselves, the more God gives us grace, the more grace we have, the more we can understand things. People see everything with secular eyes and cannot see beyond that. They do not have the breadth of the Spirit that results from faith and love. People say, oh, I don't understand. They might read something or hear about something. They go, I don't understand. And the elder says that they don't take the time to see if there's something there, perhaps something that they overlooked. They simply reject it because they don't understand it, which is what we've done in the first part of the um, talk. I read you those things on purpose, and a lot of you didn't understand them because I spoke to a few people later and they said, no, I, I don't. But one person said something which was quite good. She said, well, when I go to university or when I was at school, there was a lot of things the teachers would say which I didn't understand, but I can't reject it because I don't understand it. That's on a secular level. And remember, I've always said that God does not allow the scientists and the, all, all these people to work everything out. They don't know. They can't even work out simple diseases. So they can't work out the things of the universe. They can't work out things in physics or biology. They're, they're limited. And if they're limited in those things, how much more then can we, that we find it hard to work out the spiritual things unless we're given the grace by God? And even then, we are given what is beneficial for us, not, you know. The, when, um, when logic gets involved, we have a hard time understanding the gospel and the Holy Fathers. Our spiritual sense is so altered that our logic will prove the gospel and the works of the Holy Fathers as useless. And we've come to the stage where there are even orthodox priests and theologians who have said that um, the 
the Holy Fathers were limited or backward or superstitious or um, uh, primitive, etc., etc. This is from people that they know. This is within the Orthodox Church. So I'm not going to, why worry about what the Protestants or the Catholics do when we've got the problem even in, even in the church? People who, who say that um, uh, St. Cosmas was a fanatic or uh, other stupidities that are saying, oh, that, we've, you know, that we come from monkeys and other stupidities that they say. They came from monkeys, I understand. But to say that everyone else comes from monkeys is a bit of a problem. They must have come from monkeys because their brains are so limited that they can't understand, so they must be. You don't enter discussions with these people because you lose your peace. I'll tell you the secret. When these people come up, even if they're priests, they're not being disrespectful, but if they come up and say things which are blasphemous, putting down the Holy Fathers or saying wrong things, there's no discussion. You go to the um, fruit shop, get a bag of bananas, and you say, since you believe you come f- we come from monkeys, eat the bananas, and that's it. <laughs> and leave the discussion at that. That's the best. You don't, you don't go into discussion. So do you see how logic can lead one to wrong interpretation? You must always remember that if we are not purified... If divine illumination does not come to us, our interpretations will be muddled and confused. Orthodox life is ascetical. What does that mean? The Orthodox life is one of fasting, of prayer, of spiritual struggle, of enduring sicknesses, of obedience, of repentance, the most important. That's what Orthodox spirituality is. If, if you don't go through those things, then there's no way that God will give his grace to a person. These things are necessary. That's what the saints did. That's what we do. It's important. Fasting, prayer, repentance, that's the basis. What was the first thing that Christ said when he started preaching? Repent. What was the first thing that... St. John the Baptist said, repent. Repentance, we don't even, a lot of people haven't even repented properly. Some people mentally say, I've done this, I've done that, mentally, but they haven't felt it with their heart, which means some people have not even entered on the first step of spiritual, which is repentance. Suddenly, these people read a few books or go and do a theological course and come and say, that they understand orthodoxy and they come and, and, and they start teaching things which are contrary because they are darkened because they don't have the life of humility and asceticism, which is what is part of the orthodox church. Our church, the orthodox church, has kept that. The Protestants don't even have fasting and I'm pointing out the fact they don't even know what spiritual struggle is. The Catholic Church has basically eliminated their fasting as well and, and everything's to do with mind, with, with their mind, working things out. But the Orthodox Church is not the same. Now, he says here, Elder, I feel that my judgment, my logic and my sense of human justice 
are an obstacle to my spiritual progress. A person says to him that the way that he looks at things is obstructing his spiritual uh, progress. And the elder says, of course, they are obstacles to your spiritual progress because where they are present, God's grace is absent. In other words, where there is logic, where there is a, where we try to interpret things in a human way, then God's grace is absent. And then we are left without divine assistance and we fall flat on our face. As a rule, human judgment and justice are unjust. The way the world looks at things is unjust. The way the church looks at things is just, which we'll see in a minute. God's justice is full of love, forbearance and forgiveness. The virus causing your spiritual disease is your tendency to examine things with human logic. So the elders telling this person, the reason why you've got this disease, this, the way that you look at it, is because you use logic. The medicine that will cure you is good thoughts. When our thinking is on the right side and our thoughts are good, the capacity of our heart increases. You tend to use logic too much, and for this reason, you must be very careful with your thoughts because the conclusions you reach based on logic are human and not spiritual and holy. When we make things with, when we when we look at something and we use our brains, our minds, our reason, then the then we will come to conclusions which are not spiritual, are not correct. Elder, why do I criticize others so much? In your case, he says, it's your law studies. This person studied law. That should be to blame. Studies in a particular field or work in a particular profession will often cultivate in us a dry logic. That's what university studies a lot of times do. It makes people um, uh, uh, logical but not spiritual. Logic is the disease of intellectuals. It's inside their bone marrow. It's deep within them. Now, someone will say, does that mean we don't go to university? Does that mean we don't study? No, it means that we have to be careful that we don't become what's called intellectual punks. Now, you know what a punk is? You know, those little kids, when they just grow up all of a sudden and then all of a sudden they think that they're tough. They're called punks. But there's also intellectual punks. I, came in, I, was in, I had an encounter with an intellectual punk um, last month. Now, I'll explain to you what it means. It means people that go to, you know, they go to uni or go to school, they go to do an nature especially the university, and they come out and they just think that, they're, that they're, they've discovered their mind and they've learnt a few things, a few things, and then all of a sudden they think that they're intellectually tough, that they're really strong in their minds and they want to, like those punks that think they're tough, that's how these people are. Last time at this talk, someone said to me, which was, a, which was good, what the person said helped me because I went and investigated and it, and it actually brought me to do this topic but wasn't good for him. Last time at the Paraclesis of St. Xenia, I said that God uh, brings sicknesses to people. This person came up to me and said, uh, you're wrong. No, excuse me. No, I could be wrong. I mean himself, even if when I speak to someone and the person senior to me 
you don't go up to the person and say you're wrong. Firstly, you may, you know, even if you've read it, you still may be wrong. You've got to not trust yourself all the time. So you go up to the person and say, uh, and you can do it in a more humble way. Say, oh, excuse me, you know, your eminence or your father or whoever you're speaking to. Um, you know, when you said that, I'm just a little bit confused because I read that. Can you help me to understand it? It's humble. So you don't go and say, you're wrong. This person goes up to me and goes, you're wrong. But before he said to me, I'm wrong, he went and told other people in the church, some, some friends, oh, he's wrong. I feel like giving him a cracker because he comes coming. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. I thought it was uh, like one of those parrots that keep on repeating themselves. And the person said that God does not send um, sicknesses, etc. That God allows but doesn't send. And then I tried to explain to him a few things, but then the person just got locked in the brain. I went and investigated. I wrote up letters over some of his letters overseas. Also spoke to the bishop, to Metropolitan, and I also did some more reading. And even though this person's whole spirit was wrong, which is like I was trying to say, as an intellectual punk, not not good at all. But not only that, he also caused problem with a person that came who wasn't even orthodox. Uh, sorry, the person's orthodox, and but the person's kind of coming back to the church a bit, but still goes to Protestant churches, mixed up. I'm aware of that. But this intellectual punk was being rude to the other person and upset him. You see? So not only did he upset the person in the church by saying, oh, the priest is wrong, when the person in the church was quite happy with the talk, then he came into the hall and then he upset someone else who is trying to find themselves in, you know, in, in orthodoxy. So that's wrong as well. I don't like that. I don't want you to come here and quarrel or when you hear something from someone, then there's no need for you to go into discussions and cause problems because you don't know where that person's coming from. I mean, there's things that I see in the church, people that come without scarves. Okay, I'm not used to that. But some people come from churches that they don't wear scarves. Women don't wear scarves. I advise people to do it because that's what is in the commandments and that's what's pleasing to God that women, when they pray, they cover their heads. Now, in the Greek church, for example, no one hardly does except from some old women. So when a young woman comes in, then basically everyone's going to turn around and look at them. I understand that. It's hard. In the Russian church, that won't happen. In the Serbian church, I think they wear scarves. But in the Greek church, they've lost that. They've lost that tradition except in the old calendar. So... What happens there is, well, if you can't do it within your own churches, do it at home when you pray. Wear a scarf. And when you come to Russian churches, for example, where you can do it, do it. Try it out. Wear a scarf. But I'm not going to go up to someone and say to them and scream and tear my clothes like the Jews did and say, you're not wearing a scarf and cause all trouble. Why? Why do that for? So, for example, this particular person I'm speaking about, I know that that person goes to Orthodox churches and he goes to Protestant churches because that's the way he was brought up from young. But I don't go and say to him uh, to stop going to the Protestant churches. Well, why should I say that to him for? Because 
I want him to slowly, slowly see the difference between the Protestant and the Orthodox Church. And slowly, slowly, that person actually is saying that the Protestant Church is different and, and that the Orthodox Church has much more to it. But if I say to him that, now, it's different for a person who's a practicing Orthodox. If you're practicing Orthodox, what job do you have of going to the Protestant Church? To those persons, I would say something. But this intellectual punk caused trouble and, and that was not good. So, there was one part I wanted to say about that. Sorry? Oh, the Metropolitan said it's just interchangeable, whether God said, oh, that's right, yeah. And I found, oh, we're going to come to it now. I'll read you, I'll read you that part, which I was quite, um, see, that was good what he did because he actually made me think about it. And as I've been reading, I go, oh, there it is. Where something might have passed my mind, he actually caused me to do it. Good, good for me, but bad for his soul. Because Elder Paisio says, even when you've even when you're writing something but you're arguing about it, it means it's pride. No good for your soul. And especially if you're arguing with someone who's senior to you. Elder Paisio says, bear in mind that some things occur either because God permits them to happen or in order to instruct people or because he causes them to happen for our benefit. So this person was saying, when someone's, when the fathers say God causes, he means permits, and it was going all over the place. He just he got confused from his pride. But here the elder clears it up. Both, he said, yes, God permits, but also God causes them to happen for our benefit. So that is important. I wanted to discuss it with him, but you know what? I said no because the person um, is beyond, so I only can pray. Some people you can't, you can't talk to them because of this intellectual pride. Um, but, but it helped me because I actually investigated more and asked people and, and it was very, 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 um, very beneficial. And from that, we, I thought of this idea to do this talk. Don't become intellectual punks. That's what happens to people when they first come into the church. They start to read, they start to learn things, and then suddenly they start telling their relatives or telling their friends or their brothers or sisters or their parents and start saying, oh, God does this and this is from this and the Orthodox Church says it, and you make people go crazy. How would you like it before you changed if someone wanted to be pounding you on the head every day? Why And why did you change? Did someone force you? No, because God gave you his grace and you change. Well, that's the same as them. Whether they change at 30 years old, 40, 50, 60, or before their death, like we read just before, before the break, that's up to God. We can't be there because we've read a couple of books and pulverise people with it. So here he says that logic is the disease of intellectuals. But by the way... There are intellectuals, those who have gone and studied, and some of them are, are great people, very intelligent people, who are of faith, but rare. In general, intellectuals do find it hard to 
enter the spiritual life in general, but not impossible. Let's go on to this thing about now human justice and judgment. I actually made a list because sometimes when I'm doing the talk, I'm trying to think of things and I, sometimes I just can't think. I said, I will prepare this time. I'm going to actually make a list of all the things which I'm, I've heard people say, that's unfair, that's not right, that's not a good thing. Um, number one, babies and children dying early. People say a lot of times that how can God allow that to happen? Number two, women who are raped or fall pregnant very young and they are kind of pushed in a way to have an abortion. And then some of the arguments is, you know, you've got to think of your future and your studies and your career and you hear it all the time and you enjoy life. But it takes faith for a person who was raped to keep the child and it takes faith for a person who made a mistake and fell pregnant early to keep the child and great is their reward. But that takes faith because the reward is say, oh, well, but how about my fun? How about my freedom? No funeral for suicide or those who have denied the faith. And people say, oh, that's not fair. Okay, you know, he denied the faith. He didn't know we should still do a, a funeral for him or he committed suicide, except if they're mentally ill. We should still do a funeral for them. And they, they, they say the church is unloving. A person who marries outside the church ceases to be orthodox. Even in the Greek Archdiocese of um, America, I think I read on their website, that if a person marries outside of the orthodox church, they cease to be orthodox. Even uh, them who are a little bit more liberal who actually um, say that. Now, fourth marriage is not permitted. So a person was married once, then he gets married a second time, then he gets married a third time, and someone can say, oh, what happens if his wife died three times, right? And he's then he's lonely or he's got sexual problems and what's going to happen? It's not fair that the church will not marry them. I can say a joke. I can say, isn't the church doing a favour for the woman who might marry? Because if the other three died, maybe she'll be next and she might die as well. So um, that's one thing. If the person didn't succeed in the three marriages, then there's a problem. You know that, I, I don't know if you know this, but if a person who's a priest, if his wife dies, um, he cannot get married a second time because uh, well, even if the wife dies, if he wants to take a wife, then he must cease to be a priest. And people say that's unfair. And there's a move within the Orthodox Church, and I think... Some places they're, they're doing it wrong. I think some people are allowing it. Second marriages for priests, which is completely against the canons. But in general, we say that that's not the way it is. But people say, oh, that's unfair. Some people say, oh, you know, if God is full of love, how does, why does he allow wars? And another one is a woman or a man receives a penance for the accidental death of their child. For example, if a woman miscarries, she receives a penance. Strictly speaking, even up to one year where she doesn't commune, and people say, oh, it wasn't her fault, and it wasn't her fault, and it wasn't her fault because she miscarried. If a man accidentally uh, rolls onto a child when the child's in the bed, for example, and the child dies, he has to be penanced 
as well, and he can't become a priest because he was the cause of someone's death. And people say, oh, that's unfair. It was an accident. I used to actually think that and say, oh, that's not, you know, if a, if a woman has a miscarriage, that's not really fair. I actually used to think like that until I read the canons closely and said that uh, the woman, for the woman to have had a miscarriage, this is what the canons say, it means that a lot of, well, it means that the woman somehow was lost grace for something. It might have been a past sin. It might have been because of a present sin. And it might have been because of a future sin. And that God took away his grace and the person lost the child. These are the things where it makes your mind explode and you must be very, very careful not to think because what the church has is for reasons and the church knows because these canons are from God. We don't understand them, but it's a very big sin to deny them. When a spouse dies, for example, someone, a woman or a man dies and then leaves all these children or leaves the husband or wife behind and children, like people say, that's really unfair. How does God allow that? Men with impediments cannot be ordained. There's a canon which says that if a young, if a boy was molested when he was young in a certain way, then uh, when he grows up, he can't become a priest because he was intruded on in a serious way. And they say, oh, he's only a kid. It wasn't his fault. He was That's that. Why? Because there's a reason for it. We don't understand. Even I told you last time that uh, sexual, sexual sins scar the soul. And even though God forgives, the scar's there and it can affect people later on. Some people, not many, uh, we've been spared, but women clergy... In other churches, they say, oh, you know, it's unfair. And a lot of Catholic women are saying, oh, the church is really bad because they don't allow women to be ordained. The Orthodox Church, we don't have that problem much. But, in, but some women I have spoken to have actually said that they can't accept of why, even Orthodox women say, I can't accept why, but why, why only men can be ordained? And why can't women be ordained? I said, that's the way God has ordained it. And they say, but I can't believe it. That's your problem. Simple. That's your problem. <laughs> you don't believe it. You don't believe it. Well, I'm not going to sit down and talk to you and go around in circles and circles all day. That's it. You're humble. You accept what the church says. But the church, she, the woman says, is made up by man. Well, if you think the church is made up by man, well, why be in the church? What's so special about it? Go and join the RSO club. Same thing. <laughs> that's made up by man as well. But only one problem, you've got, you got, you got rules there too. For example, you can't walk in with sandals without socks or something like that. So what are you going to do there? Go up to the manager and say, I don't believe in it. <laughs> or go to the leagues clubs and then they can get some of the footballers to boot you out. <laughs> Since they, they're, they're used to, they're used to kicking, kicking things, so they can kick them out. So we go on to the next thing, which says... Women on Mount Athos, for example, Mount Athos is a monastic peninsula. It's part of Greece, and it's a whole area there which has 20 monasteries and scooters. Women aren't allowed on there. And some people say that's sexist. And I said to them, and I, as I say to them again, if, if you think that's sexist, that's your problem. That's the way, because that's the way the mother of God, that she, she said, this area will be set aside and it will be for monastics, male monastics. 
women are not allowed. The only the closest women get to it is on a boat, where they go on scenic tours, where they're away from the away from the shores, and they go around around and they have a look at the monasteries. You know, because some monasteries are on the are on the um, cliffs and up on the cliffs or on the edge near, near the beaches, right around the peninsula, and they go on tours. That's as bad as far. People say, oh, that's unfair. That's unfair. Other people say, oh, you know, why does God have that rule and why does St Paul say women submit to... I, some people actually say that where St Paul says women should submit to their husband, it's because St Paul was a uh, male chauvinist that he was against women. But even though the church says that the mouth of Christ is St. Paul. So whatever St. Paul says, it was like Christ said it. And what's Christ? God. So where, where St. Paul's writings, it is fully from God. But they say, no, 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 it's unfair. Some of those fools actually even say that when St. Paul was going on the road to Damascus, for example, and then he fell down because he saw the light and became blind. It was because he was epileptic. That's what the modern theologians are telling us. Monastics not wanting to see their parents. Example, we read that a lot of monastics, when they left, they didn't see their parents again. And when their parents would come to the monasteries, a lot of times they wouldn't open up the door and say, oh, no, I don't want to see my parents. And people say, oh, that's cruel. Elder Porfirius, remember that he actually, for the first years, he just left. He never even told his parents that he actually was, um, uh, that he had left. They thought he'd died or something. But he became a great saint. Some monastics do tell their parents and the parents come and visit them, but others they don't. But people say that's unfair. The poor parents. Hard to understand. And other people say, well, how come evil people progress while people that are good, that do good, don't progress in life? and have all bad things happen to them, which is not always true because evil people have bad things happen to them too. But in general, we, some, some people say to me, um, uh, I try and do the honest thing and I don't go in, I don't get it, I don't, you know, progress in my life and I haven't even got a house or I've got a big loan or whatever, and goes, oh, that person, he steals and he robs and he does all these things and yet he's progressing. Then when you say to them, but, you know, how do you know that it's what their future is? How do you know that in a few years they might not lose everything, which a lot of times they do? But, but also, there's the next life as well where we receive our reward and punishment. But people don't believe in the next life, so it's hard to explain things to them. Ascetics not opening their doors to visitors, even though they can help them. And people say, well, that's not really fair. If they can help people, why don't they open their doors? I remember once going to Manathos, and there was an elder there. They say he was a very holy person. So I said, oh, I'm going to go and see him. So I knocked on the door, didn't open the door. Right? And that's basically what I did. Elder Joseph, the great Elder Joseph, the cave dweller, as they call him, the, um, the Hesychus, who died in the 1950s, he was such a holy person, and yet he just wouldn't open his doors. He wouldn't disturb his program. He had his program, and he had this thing about silence. So... He didn't even talk to his, um, to his fellow ascetic. They used to go live kind of separate away. They wouldn't talk to each other so they can keep their communion with God. And the other monks, even monks, would say, oh, that's ridiculous and that's so rude and they've got no love. Once someone brought some fish to them 
some nice fresh fish and they left it there at their little cell where, where they were living and Elder Joseph didn't touch it because he said to himself, if I, if I go and get the fish, then we've got to clean it and then we've got to disturb our program so they wouldn't do it, so they let the fish go off. And people said, and people actually put them down and couldn't stand them. They thought that they were deceived. Elder Paisios, when he went to Manathos, uh, heard about this Elder Joseph, but he heard that he was deceived. So Elder Paisios didn't go to see him. And Elder Paisios, in his books, in his writings, or not his writings, but where they write things about him, he said that he regretted it. He says he believed the slanders and he missed out on meeting one of the holiest men that the Orthodox Church has produced in this last century. Because they used to walk around barefooted, they used to wear rags, they were just didn't talk to people and all of that. And yet from Elder Joseph produced all these spiritual children which have opened up monasteries in America like Elder Ephraim and uh, so many abbots of monasteries that were in Greece in, 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 and other monasteries in Greece, etc. All from this Elder Joseph who didn't open his doors and he didn't take the fish and let it rot. So our logic says that's wrong, but with God it's different. Um, then we hear about bishops that left their diocese. Uh, euthanasia. Some people say, oh, that's so unfair that the church is against euthanasia and how can a person suffer and what happens if he's suffering so much and it's better for the person to be allowed to leave? The church says, no, God's the one who decides when the person leaves. And people say, no, that's unfair. It's really unfair. And it says here another thing where it says... Um, uh, holy people or spiritual people or, sp or even people just leading spiritual lives that go through horrible sicknesses and afflictions. And then people say, oh, look, you know, these people have helped so many people. How can God allow them to suffer so much? Read the life of Elder Porphyrios, well, well, you heard on the tapes, Elder Porphyrios, all the diseases that he had, Elder Paisios, the horrible diseases, how much they suffered. And yet these people help so much and people say, well, is that how God rewards them for helping all, helping all those people? See, logic, we can't understand it. Um, how holy people that were slandered and this became a hindrance. I just said one example. Elder Paisios missed out on going to Elder Joseph. Elder Porfirios was slandered. So a lot of clergy and people wouldn't go to him because they say, oh, he's deceived. Uh, St John Chrysostom, when he was exiled, um, he, wasn't, he didn't do any more talks. And so people would say, but is, why did God allow this? He was helping so many people, and yet what, how did God allow those things to happen to him and we lost out on this, all this benefit? St Nectarius, the bishop in the Church of Alexandria, he um, was um, slandered to the patriarch there and he um, was thrown, away, thrown out. He was told to leave Alexandria, go. He went to Greece. He was slandered there. At the end, he ended up being the head of an ecclesiastical school, a bishop being the head of an ecclesiastical school. That, that was it. He did some preaching, like an ordinary preacher, which even a priest monk can do or a priest can do. The last years of his life, he went to a monastery in Aegina. Once the bishop, the metropolitan of um, Athens, went there, I think if I remember right, and saw him digging digging the garden, things like that. It was all dirty. And he goes, 
you, you know, how can you be doing that? You're a bishop and you're doing such filthy work and that's not correct and you shouldn't be doing that, etc., etc. And people were saying, oh, it's, and a lot of people at that stage were saying, this is so unfair. Like, why doesn't the church give him back his diocese or why this and why that and why does God allow all this to happen, etc.? But from all that, what do we get? St. Nectarius, which has got churches all over the world, he's helped so many people. One day I wish to do that life. We've got, we've got his book at the back. Fantastic. I just read it recently, his life. And it's very, very moving, uh, very well written. But yet he became the, a great saint. See, logically, people can say, well, why? Taking care of, this is, a very, this is quite a hurting one, taking care of a sick person or elderly parents or a spouse or a child, and because of that, some people don't get married. Some people lose their freedom. They, they can't enjoy their lives because they've got to take care of a, their, their sick spouse or sick child or um, their parents. They can't study a lot of times because they've got to take care of these people. For some, the solution is to, to put them in, into a home but yet, but yet for God, wouldn't it be great faith to say, well, yes, I can enjoy myself if I get rid of that person, let someone else take care of them, but God prefers if I take care of them and if I do lose out on studying or lose out my freedom or maybe not even get married because I've got to take care of my parents or whatever, then what reward? But you see, this takes faith. Can a person actually say, I'm going to do this and God will give me my reward in the next life. People say, no way, I, I, I can't do that. Like, like the woman who got pregnant or the young, young girl that got pregnant and, and they say, oh, you know, just abort the child because, you know, you're only 15 or 16. And yet there was all, all over the TV, there was thing about our oh, children having children. There's all this thing on the current affairs and today tonight saying, um, that these people are just children, they're having children, how can they have children and all these ridiculous things and they're not going to enjoy life. Then they had another program where it was saying that a lot of these young girls that are having children actually are quite good mothers. But the point is that how great it is for a person to sacrifice their life. No greater love has someone than to sacrifice their life for someone else. It doesn't just mean to die for someone else. It can also mean to give up your life willingly for someone else. Whether it's taking care of someone or whether you got pregnant accidentally or whatever. See, this is it. Then we've got this thing, this g genetic thing where they actually check the baby while the woman's pregnant. And to check out, you know, genetically whether it's going to have Down syndrome, whether it's got this, whether it's got that. And then the parent or the woman can make the decision of whether they want it or not. Of course, um, some people also base their decision on whether they're going to abort it, whether it's a male or female. But this is what Hitler did. Not, not when, it was, um, uh, when the woman was pregnant because they never had that technology. But what Hitler wanted was a perfect race. So people who were um, retarded, people that were disabled, all these people he felt were just pe pests of society, so he used to just gas them. They weren't just, just Jews. They also gassed a lot of disabled people, mentally retarded people. They went through, they went through examinations and then the doctors would, would determine whether they get gassed or not. See? And that's like a genetic selection of who who's deserves to live, who doesn't deserve to live. All these things that people say, but... 
you know, this woman, if she knows that her child's going to have Down syndrome, how can she have a child which has got Down syndrome? So the woman down the street who had a child with Down syndrome, she's an idiot, is she? And you're smart. Stem cell research, like, for example, that Michael J. Fox person who's got Parkinson's, and he goes on TV and on shows and then he's you know, shaking because he's got that, and he says that we have to use embryos because through this, through this using embryos, we're able to you know, research and, and cure a lot of diseases. He's hoping that through this stem cell research, which is using embryos, which is like babies that have been aborted and things like that, that because they've got those special cells that can be converted to other things. I don't know what they're talking about. It's all too scientific for me. But the point is that um, people say, but that's, that's true. Okay, we're using the embryos of, you know, like of, um, of, of children, like these embryos, but from this we can solve diseases, horrible diseases. And when you see that Michael J. Fox, is that his name? Yeah. When you see that person, you see him on the TV, he actually is like he's, looks, he's, like he's suffering. He's shaking and, and, and Parkinson's a horrible disease. But what he's saying is that he's willing to use all these embryos, which are living beings, so that he can get better and others can get better. Logically, some people would say, um, oh, yes, but it's for the good of mankind. Mm. Didn't know that one. That was a whole list. I'm sure you people can think of a lot of other things which will help you to understand that uh, don't think that you have the right, or myself, to judge the church. There are some rules in the church which have been made up by humans, those things, you know, some superstitions and silliness. Some even some priests say silly things like, um, I don't know, I can't, I know, but they say silly things too. But the point is I'm talking about what the church has as teachings and especially for even modern-day modern day, um, dilemmas like stem cell issues, we listen to holy people and see what they say. But there are things in there which are clear-cut. Now, are there any questions on that list? Did you find that list interesting? I, I found it. Um, just yeah, I just started to. I said I'm going to. I'm going to prepare this. I'm going to really write a list out, and just couldn't stop. I couldn't stop the whole list. Was kept on going. Any questions? That's the word. Prenatal screening. Yeah. That's the. Couldn't say. But they're already doing that. Even it's gone to the stage where they're saying that you know women and couples, but especially women, they're saying there that they want you know a child with blue eyes. They want this. They want that. So you know, and then it, it, when it gets to the stage that they can actually determine, well, I don't know if they can. 
that the child with the child's got blue eyes. They might just say, okay, well, let's get rid of it because it hasn't got the blue eyes and we just keep on trying. No, it's like it's just gone to the stage where it's become like madness. Now, where you said, which is an interesting point, that even secular people, people that aren't spiritual, are speaking up against it and saying it's discrimination. Uh, that these people, we, they might say, but how can these people say such things if they're not Christians? You know, how can they be saying such a correct thing? And what I've said before, because the gospel is written in our hearts. Even people who don't believe have everyone, because they're born, they are created in the image of God, have the gospel in their hearts. Some people can understand it more, some people less. That's why you see from the secular world comments that are completely correct according to God's law, even though they might not have read the Bible or have never read a patristic book because God's put his law in everyone's uh, heart and that's why everyone's going to be judged according to how much their heart is telling them what's right and what's wrong. Uh, yeah, so that's, that was a good point. So I like those comments. See, like this, what was it, genetic what? Yeah, see, I can't re- see. I can't remember everything because if I try to remember everything, my brain would just blow up. It's just too much. So um, I say it in a bit of a primitive way. But when you say things like that, that's good. I like that support. Any any other questions to support? Ah, uh, that's right. Monica's mother. There, there. That's right. They said that they said to her uh, with the third child that um, not not her. That she's a second. The third child. They said. Um, the doctor said to her, look, you know, your child's going to have Down syndrome and um, this and that. And she, her mother said, which wasn't really religious to that much, just a little but not really religious much, and she says, I'm not going to get rid of it. I'm going to keep it. And at the end, she had the baby and it didn't have Down syndrome. But even if it had Down syndrome, she already made her decision that she's going to take care of the child. But people, because they're selfish... And because they use their logic, so, but why should I take care of a, a child that's going to burden my life when it's so easy to get rid of it? It is easy. In the old days, it was hard to get an abortion because it was illegal. And you had to go into backyard places and a lot of times have chance of infection and things like that. And, and, and a lot of women died in those backyard places. But today, it's so easy. It's just a one-day procedure. Not even, I think. It's a, just a small procedure. So it's easy. And when a woman has that option, but she does not take that option, that's a great thing in God's eyes. Like as I said before, uh, how many people keep their marriage vows? It's so easy to fall today. Harder in the olden days, but now it's so easy for a person to go to cheat on their wives or cheat on their husbands. It's so, but if someone does not do that, in this day and age, in God's eyes, that person is really, really great because they actually held themselves in a time where they can do whatever they want. Another thing is for someone to, to be orthodox in a country which is heterodox, like this country. This country is not an orthodox country like Russia, for example, now, um, Greece, etc., where it's orthodox country, where it's orthodox is everywhere. But here it's not. And if someone keeps their orthodoxy in this time where it's just ecumenism and, and confusion and all religions are the same and all these type of things, if someone keeps their orthodoxy, in God's eyes, that is 
one of the biggest great and greatest things. See, my father, when he came years ago from Greece, um, he was around 16, and then he... Um, anyway, and he, he had relatives here, and he told me uh, when I was older, he said to me that a lot of the relatives became either um, Baptists, like Protestants, even though, even though they were Orthodox, they denied their Orthodoxy, became Baptists. Right? Some became Masons and just basically gave up their orthodoxy. And he said to me, um, and he never knew much about orthodoxy, but he said to me, I'd, I'd never, no, I didn't want to do that. Even if it was for money, I wouldn't do it. When I became confused during my growing up period, and I was not brought up in the church, so that shows because my father didn't really know much, but he still kept his orthodoxy and died orthodox, uh, I became confused. And I started to, and in those days, when I first came to the church, a lot of the priests didn't speak English. So I started to go to Catholic churches and started to speak to Catholic priests there and try and, you know, get books and things like that because I was interested in spiritual things and that to me the Orthodox Church didn't have much of it. That's what I thought. Anyway, and at one stage, at one stage I said, oh, well, in my stupidity... I go, oh, I'll just, oh, I think I'll become Catholic because I like the English part of things. And my father, very simply, he just said to me, uh, he, didn't, he didn't go crazy in that because he, I'm just really simple, but it hit me. He goes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change my religion. That, that, that's all he said. And, I, and it really, that's all he said. He didn't say, no, don't do it, don't do this, don't do that. Well, my mother was confused and she was happy in some ways because she goes, oh, at least he's going to start going to church. She was a bit confused. She changed later on. But in the beginning, she was quite confused. But my father said, I wouldn't change my religion. And then that disturbed me. And then through God's providence, I met an Orthodox priest that spoke English and then he gave me books. And then I, I went to Manathos, etc., etc. So um, today, to keep your orthodoxy is a very big thing. But the demons don't tell you that. They tell you all different things and confuse you and say, oh, you're not good and you can't pray or you're not doing this, you're not doing that, which is true. But in those prayers that we read, it says, even though I've sinned, I still have confessed uh, my faith in the Orthodox and I believe whatever the Orthodox Church says and I, and I give up my soul as an Orthodox Christian. And even that is enough to save us, especially today. Now we go to this little story, which I'll end with. There's so much more to do, but we'll do it next time. This little story here, I remember I was told many years ago when I first entered the church and I went to an island in Greece and I went to a little monastery and... We were at this monastery where they had no electricity. It was on the seashore and it was very quiet and it was winter, so we had a fireplace. And we were sitting there with a little candle and this monk told me this story. And uh, I couldn't remember it properly, but I, I did remember a lot of it. He must have told me that because I was trying to work things out with my brain. He said that, you know, just listen to this story. And he told me this story and then I found it in the books on Elder Paisios, and I want to share it with you because this is the story that he told me, and it's really, really um, a wonderful story. Um, 
An ascetic was praying to God, asking him to reveal why the righteous and pious people are miserable and suffer unjustly, whereas the unrighteous and sinful ones are rich and contented. And all those type of questions, why this, why that, why does this happen, like all those lists that I read before. While he was asking God to reveal to him this mystery, he heard a voice saying to him, do not ask to comprehend, this is good advice for us, do not ask to comprehend what your mind and power of knowledge cannot grasp and do not examine the mysteries of God as his judgments are like an endless ocean. God's ways, God's mind is like an ocean, so endless, I mean, even the ocean has an end, one can say. But with God, it is endless to understand his mind and why he does things. However... Since you wish to know, go out there in the world and watch carefully the people and you will be able to understand a small part of God's judgment. Then you will know that God's prudent governing is unexplored and inscrutable. In other words, you can't understand God's ways. When the ascetic heard all this, he left for the world. After walking for a while, he reached a meadow, like an open area there, and there was a fountain nearby and an old tree which was hollow. He hid inside the hollow tree in order to watch the busy street passing by the meadow. So he just went there, God enlightened him, go to this tree and you'll get some answers of why this and why that. After a while, a rich man passed by riding his horse. He stopped by the fountain to drink some water and rest. So they've got the, the ascetic who thinks like us a lot of times, why this, why that? And he was told by, a voice was told him, go into the world. They went into this tree and he was there waiting to see what God's going to show him in answer to his question of why, why, why. So he saw this rich man that passed by riding a horse. The rich man stopped to drink some water and to rest. While he was sitting there, he took a purse out of his pocket. This monk that I was speaking to was very animated and he was telling me the story, saying, and he reached into his pocket. He was, he was actually quite a dramatic person. He took it out, and because he had a love of money, he would love every so often he would count his money. You know, like people go on their accounts on the internet to look how much they've got? And, um, and uh, it's just like a passion, you know? And people talk about, oh, I've got three houses, and I've got this much and that much and this and that. Most of them now have lost it anyway, but, um, but that's, that's a thing of greed, you want to see, feel, touch. So um, this person would do that. So he stopped and he took out, as the monk said, took out his money and he started to count. And he goes, while he was sitting there, he took a purse out of his pocket containing 100 golden coins and started counting them. When he finished counting, he mistakenly left the purse on the grass instead of putting it back in his pocket. After he ate, rested and slept for a while, he then took off without realising that he left his purse on the grass. That's the first thing. After some time, another person came past. He stopped by the fountain to drink water. And what did he see on the grass? A purse with golden coins. He took it and left running in the fields and said to himself, I, that, I really scored well there. So he, got a, so he got this purse with 100 coins. A few minutes later, a third man came along. As he was tired... He went by the fountain to drink some water and sat to eat a piece of bread. The ancients, you know, they knew about sugar levels more than us. 
where they actually would understand that they had to eat something, just to give them that. A lot of times people go so long without eating, but that's what's interesting, that the other guy ate and this person ate. But we don't, but remember those pieces of bread in those days was really nutritional, like the, the stuff we eat today, which is like cotton wool. As this poor man was eating, the rich man came back to look for his purse. So you got it so far? Rich man left his money there and left. The second man came, saw the money, ran off. Third man comes, sees, and he's just sitting there. So the rich man comes back, the first man, and he had an extremely angry look on his face and went straight to him, shouting in a rage and demanding his purse. And the poor man, though, who had no idea about the purse and the gold coins, assured him that he had not seen it. Then the rich man began beating him up so badly that he finally killed him. He searched through his clothes and found nothing. He left feeling very sad. The ascetic was watching this incident, sitting inside the tree there, and was astounded. He felt very sad and began to cry, feeling sorry for the unjust death of the poor man, and prayed to God thus. He goes, Lord, what is this meaning of your will? Let me know how your kindness can tolerate such an injustice. Someone lost the coins, another man found them, and a third man was unjustly murdered. See? Doesn't all sound... It's, that, that, this is an excellent example, and I always remember this example. Uh, this, this example was told me back in 1985, so nearly 24 years ago, and I never forgot it, but now I've got it in writing, which is actually good because I've got the full thing. So isn't that, doesn't that sound unjust? Doesn't it sound unfair? So let's have a look at the answer. And as he was praying and crying, an angel of the Lord appeared and told him, don't feel sorry for the poor man, nor think that this incident is not the will of God. Bear in mind that some things occur either because God permits them to or in order to instruct people or because he causes them to happen for our benefit. This is, and that's what I read before. That paragraph is important. People say, like that person the, that last time, he said, that, you know, God is love. He cannot do something which is bad. In our minds, it's bad. A parent smacks the child, for example, and we say, oh, that parent is bad. It could be bad, but the parent has got love in their heart and is smacking the child, for example, in the right way, without passion, but for the good of the child, then if we praise that, how much, or punish the child, or whatever, in other ways, how much more then do we, then we should look at what God does? And even though it might look cruel to us, it's not cruel. Now listen, the man who lost the gold coins is the next door neighbour of the one that found them. So the one who lost the coins lives here and the one who found the coins was his next door neighbour. He owned a farm worth 100 golden coins. The rich man who was a really greedy person forced him to sell his farm to him for only 50 golden coins. So he forced this his neighbour, to sell the farm for 50 coin, golden coins, only when it was worth 100. The poor man, feeling helpless, prayed to God to punish his unjust neighbour on his behalf. Now, this is a, another thing which we're gonna, I will go into that because Elder Pacer speaks a lot about cursings and wishing people 
punishments, etc., etc. There's things behind it. But for the time being, I'm not going to go into it because it will spoil the story, that this man prayed to God and said, I want you to punish him for what he done because he stole from me. And Elder Basil, I will say one thing, he does talk about um, people who have been treated unjustly. When they do complain to God, a lot of times their complaints are heard and people get punished. So, for example, if you're a person who is, um, you know, if you're a person who owns a shop or, I don't know, some business or whatever, and you've robbed someone, a poor person, a widow, a widow, a widow with, with children, and you do that, and that widow complains to God and says, Oh, you know, what did this man do? You know, he never even felt sorry for me. He robbed me, and he knows that I'm a widow, uh, I'm a, a widow, and that I've, um, I've got children. And those complaints to God bring down curses on those people who have treated others unjustly. And bad things happen to that person and to their family, to their children, etc. So I'll just say that. We'll go into that in more detail another time. And God rewarded him in double, the second man. So God rewarded him by letting him find the hundred coins. The second man, the tired and poor one who was unjustly killed, had once committed a murder. So the one that got killed unjustly, he once committed a murder. He had honestly repented and lived the rest of his life according to God's will. He constantly prayed to God to forgive him and said to him, God... Let me have the same kind of death as the one that I gave. Even though he was forgiven, but he just wanted more. And he prayed to God and said, I killed someone, I want to be killed. Of course, our Lord had forgiven him since the first time he expressed his repentance for his sinful act. However, God was moved by the sensitivity and righteousness of this man who had not only tried to live according to his will, but also wished to pay back for his sinful act. So God fulfilled his wish and gave him the chance to experience a violent death, as he himself had asked for, and took him to heaven by his side, grant him a glorious um, crown for his deep and responsive repentance. So that... Violent death was a was a word that I was an expression that I used in talk number two, where I spoke there in detail about violent deaths, and I actually have here, which I'm not going to have time, which I will do next time. While I was preparing this, um, this person wrote to me from America, who said to me a story about something which was really horrible, and I said to him, "Look, can you write in more detail about it? I would like to talk about it in the talk with your permission." And he said, "Yes." Uh, you know, and he wrote he wrote the deed. I got the email here, and I was going to read parts of the email. If he didn't if he didn't let me, then I, what I would do is I'd say the story, but I'd change some certain facts so people don't know. Sometimes I do that. So when people say, "Oh, you're telling stories about someone," and uh, a lot of times the stories I say, one, the people could be in this in here at the, at the time being. Number two, people are going to hear the talk. I make sure that I send them the talk, and they know I'm going to do it. Or number three. If the person I don't know anymore and I haven't had a chance to speak to them and say, do you mind if I mention that example, what I do is I'll change some facts around so the person, people don't know. So, you know, don't think that by, by saying that that people can say, oh, I can work out who's talking about, you can't because, this, because a lot of times the people don't care. They said, oh, no, you can use my example. 
like this person did, or I just changed some facts around to protect the innocent, as they say on um, TV. So the third man, the greedy one, who lost the gold coins and committed the murder, had fallen into two sins. He fell into avarice and stinginess. God permitted a violent murder to be committed so that he may experience pain, which in turn would lead him to repentance. So the sin of murder turned out to be a cause for his decision to leave the world, and he became a monk. So let's have a look now. The person that killed the other person became a monk. The one that was killed wanted to be killed so that he, and, he, and he gained heaven. And the other person that was treated unjustly and lost the money for his farm got his money back. So where and under what circumstances do you see that God was unjust, merciless and cruel? You should not examine God's judgments as he always makes them correctly and according to the way he knows, whereas you misjudge them and find them unjust. You should also know that many things happen with God's will for reasons we do not know. Therefore, the right thing for us is to say, Righteous art thou, O Lord, and right are thy judgments. You know. You know what to do. You know what's best for us. And that example, I've never forgotten. Forgotten. I'm so happy that I found it. There's one more I'm going to read next time, uh, which is even quite more, uh, more um, tr- uh, horrible one one can say, that, that God allowed these things to happen, all that type of thing. So did you like that last account? I always think of it like this. We see the universe, we see the planets, we see the way that the planets, are, their orbits, everything's so perfect, how in the world of biology is perfect and the world of chemistry is perfect and the world of um, physics and uh, uh, everything is just so perfect, so it's just all worked out by God. And people say, like, how does God keep the orbits and that the planets don't smash into each other or planets don't even go off their orbit, they stay in there for all those thousands of years, etc. Everything is perfect. And if God is able to do that, he's also able to do everything within our lives perfectly for the best for our souls. Everything's worked out. Did you want me to... Um, did you want me to... Um, I think... I'll take the, I'll just do it really quickly. I think um, this this account will be um, uh, ho- it's horrible. It's quite horrible, but um, I think it's beneficial. It's a young fellow. Uh, sorry, it's a fellow who wrote to me. He is a Russian. He used to live in Russia, and he says here that um, when he was very small and before he, you know he started to understand properly he knew that something wasn't right with his family and he knew that his family was not normal i started to understand that things weren't really right when i saw my parents uh, arguing and f- or fighting and a few times my mother told my brother and i to run outside and call the police because there's always violence etc and they had to come and take the father away later on he said I realised that it wasn't just him that was beating her, but that she used to also beat him and abuse him emotionally and physically. Uh, Emotionally, she really hurt him by taking us away from home a lot of times and he didn't know where they were and then he would find them and uh, no one from my mother's family loved my father 
and my father always gave everything he could to me and my brother and to our family. It was, it, it, it was as if he couldn't live without them. So the father was a, um, uh, suffered from drinking and violence, etc. Parents used to fight. The mother used to drink. So these children experienced not a very good childhood. Before I was about seven, he says, I was closer to my mother. Not that I love my mother more, but I was closer, which is correct. That's he actually said it correctly, because up to around seven, the child is inclined to the mother. Some men get upset and they go, oh, my children don't love me. Well, they, 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 for the first seven years, that's, that's what they want, the mother. It's, that's normal. Then, you know, sit there like a baby and get jealous because your kid thinks, you think that the kid likes the mother more. Believable. It says here that um, the father did bad things, but not in front of the children. He tried to refrain, but the mother used to do really bad things, bring, bring um, uh, other people home and get drunk. And um, she even used to sometimes drug the husband so that uh, she could participate in certain sinful things while the husband was out of it. And, you know, and the children used to see a lot of this stuff. So the mother was quite uh, atrocious in her, with her passions of other men and things like that. Uh, so she said, it says here, my mother did, did things she shouldn't have in front of us, like bringing her men. They both drank in front of us, etc., etc. et cetera. Uh, But the mother, apart from that fact that she did all these things, still baptised her children. And I remember a couple of times going to church when we used to visit her family. My father didn't really talk about religion, but as far as I know, he didn't believe as much as he knows. He once tested my knowledge and he asked me something about Christianity. I didn't know. And then he said to me that, um, um, how do you believe in those things? He also said something that, the, you know, against the church. So he wasn't, he was negative against the church. The father started thinking seriously about what was going on in the family and he wanted things to change. He wanted to give up drinking and he wanted the family to be a normal family. So within his heart, he wanted to change. But his passions were, was, was difficult. But that's important that he wanted to change. My brother and I were at a camp during that one summer. Two, da uh, two days before they were supposed to be picked up, his father came to the camp and was saying to these kids that I love you and that things are going to change and I'm going to change, I'm not going to drink anymore, etc. So this father was really going through a lot of struggle. Mother never said that. We thought that my father was going to pick us up from the camp, but instead who came? The grandmother and my mother came to pick us up. And her face looked like something bad had happened. When we came home, she told us that the father came back drunk and started to beat her and said that he was leaving and that, in other words, the kids were told that the father had gone, had abandoned them. That's what the mother told them. Almost right after we came home from camp, uh, this other person started to live at the apartment and this person that's writing, the child, said that he got very upset that this person was, um, uh, took the place of the father. She answered that he, uh, and then he said, I don't want him to be here. And they said, whether you like it or not, he's going to stay. Once I tried to, um, uh, once I tried not to let, yeah, so anyway, tried not to even let them into the apartment, but he was only a young child. Other times people would come over and drink and smoke and dance 
This is all in front of the children. But the father had gone. I really didn't like this. Anyway, so it says here, we tried to find my father for nine months. After nine months, I came home from school and there were police everywhere. We were told, so as not to shock us, that the police said that someone came and tried to buy some stolen goods from your mother and then he tried to do something that was inappropriate and then your mother uh, murdered him, killed him. They said that the man was drunk and started, yeah, and that she killed him, yeah. And this is what they made up to tell us so as not to shock us. What really happened is the following. Okay, we come now to the part. Now, you might say, why am I reading this, etc.? Because it fits into what I'm saying, that in our minds we can't understand things, but you're going to be a bit shocked, but later on I'll tell you the outcome. Nine months after the father had supposedly left, this person who's writing me the email said that his schoolmate found his fa- half of his father's corpse in the pond and the other half the police found in the basement. So in other words, that this person had a violent death. My mother tried... Yeah, so what happened was that the mother did it. She murdered the father... Uh, dispose of the body in, in a really bad way, and that's if you if you listen to talk to, I speak about that that disdain of the body, etc. That, that these things give forgiveness of sins, violent deaths and things like that. She went to jail. I think at the time, this young boy was ten years old when it happened, and his brother I think was a bit younger. And during his in in, in during up to his twenties, early twenties, that he would always think about what happened and cry. I still sometimes wonder how I realise that God does exist, even though all these things happen and everything happens according to his will. Somehow in his mind that bit came to him, even though he wasn't really a believer, but something was telling him this is according to God. There was a time that I didn't believe in God because of what happened. My brother still does not believe. Had my father lived, because the father was anti-religious, was against religion, this person said, I now understand that it was a high chance that if my father lived that I would have become an atheist. So what happened? The father had a violent death. His body was discarded in the most horrible way. And this man here, even though he went through all these things, is now a believing Orthodox Christian who has got to the stage, because the mother actually wrote letters from the jail, but he wouldn't touch them because he was disturbed. He hated, he hated the mother. But then later on, as he got a bit older, he began to kind of forgive her but didn't want to see her. Now he's got to the stage where he wants to try and find out what happened to her. And I really am interested myself, what happened to her? What effect did this have? On her. One day, God willing, we'll find that out. But what's important here is that this young man, who is now married with an Orthodox person, and they live an Orthodox life, and it's interesting that all this happened for him to come to the church, and even though the father, he's baptised Orthodox, and even though the father 
They didn't believe, because remember those times, a lot of communism and they were brainwashed a lot and things like that. But within his heart, he had the gospel in that he wanted to lead a proper life. He had love for his children. He wanted to try and do the right thing and this that. And at that time, it's interesting, a few days before he was murdered, that's the thoughts that he had, that he even came to the significant, that he came to the camp, even though he was supposed to pick them up two days later, he came to the camp and said, that I love you and I'm going to change, I'm going to do this and we're going to be a good family, etc. And then he went back home and that's when she did what she did. So this man was killed at a time when he was trying to change. How do we even know what was in his mind towards God? How do we know that he wasn't praying at the time? We don't know those things. But the way that this all happened, it's pretty much that this person's violent death and the discarding of his body for nine months, etc., and the whole thing, uh, gave him a tremendous amount of uh, uh, God's forgiveness because God uh, gives forgiveness of sins when someone dies a violent death. And I said to this person, you should pray for your father. I sent the Menachathus to pray for a person that's died, for a loved one, and to pray and to commemorate the father because he was orthodox. And even though he had some stupidities that he said, there's something about this which shows that that person's death was in in accordance to God's will, and from that his son now is a, is, a, is a firm believer. And I'll tell you the name of the father because I want you people, and people are going to hear the talk, to commemorate him. Sergius is the name. And when you go to church and you write your lists, put, that, put his name in there as well because we have read, and I'm going to be doing a talk in uh, November, more about how to help the dead, that we have read so many accounts of people who died and were, were, um, even went to hell and that through love, through the love of the people left behind, through their prayers, through the commemorations, that God actually took them out of hell. So it's very, very important. And um, I found this story, which was good. It just turned out to be at the same time that I was preparing this talk uh, and I thought that, that, and to see that this bo- this man actually said to me, I believe that if my father lived possibly that I would have, he could have maybe made me into an atheist. And I, this person that went through this most horrible situation actually says, he wrote it here, says that he says that everything happens according to God's will. And from that, that calmed him down. And now he's even searching for his mother to contact her. And I'd be very interested to see. I wouldn't be surprised if the mother's actually changed. So that uh, story, I'm sorry, I know some people found it very uncomfortable, which I get confused because you watch worse things on TV where it's visual and you don't get upset. Some people say, oh, that priest spoke about these horrible things. But yet on TV you watch worse. Some people say, um, oh, you know, he speaks about sexual things, he speaks about things so graphically and say, well... And they get, and they get upset and they go, well, if you don't watch TV and you don't read bad things, then I would say, yes, I don't want to defile you, so I'll tell you certain sections to put some earmuffs on and you don't hear it and then take it off when I'm done. But when you're watching all these horrible things on TV and on films and things like that 
And then people come and say, oh, he spoke so graphically. I mean, I did speak a bit, a bit um, in a roundabout way because some of the younger kids that don't watch the TV, so they, I didn't want to cause them too much terrorisation because they're a bit young. That's why I was going a little bit like using words like corpse and things like that. Uh, but in general, um, we have to discuss these things. And people like the, that I discuss those things because they want to know about it. And that's the end of those. Of course, a lot of those. Another thing I wanted to, which was an account of something to do with a possessed person, which was excellent, and a lot of other things. But that will be next month. Any last questions? No. Um, do you know Oprah? You know that woman, Oprah. She's got a book. She's got a book club. They say if Oprah recommends a book, the book will become famous. You heard that? If she recommends the book, that's it. If she recommends anything, that, that's it. It's like she's got a magic wand. And, um, and I thought to myself, that's a good idea. Why don't I make my own, my own um, recommendation of books too? See, we can learn some things, even from, um, um, even from Oprah. So I've, I've uh, got some books which I want to recommend because people say to me, what should I read, what should I not, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as you can see, these books that I've purchased from um, uh, overseas purposely, because I, that was my dream when I was young. I wanted to make books available to people, good books. Okay, the first book that I want to, I want to do this every week. The first book is it's called The Spiritual Father by Archimandrite Vasilios Bakuyanis, Greek Archimandrite. All his books are fantastic because they're simple. I've... Um, given this book to some people, people have read it, they said it's really, really simple and explains the role of the spiritual father, how you should act towards him. This is an excellent book. The other one is a new one, which I um, just got recently. It's called Return. This speaks about repentance and confession, but it, it's got a lot of things in, in there which um, I, I really... Uh, See, I'm the type of person, I read this book. I only had one of these books. Someone gave it to me when they went overseas. They brought it to me and I read it. I finally read it. I had it in my cupboard there for a while and I just took it. I said, I'm going to read this book. And I read it. And as soon as I read it, I go, this book is really, really wonderful. So I ordered 100 of them. That's the way I am. When I see something that's beneficial, I'll order them. They sell, they sell, they don't, they don't. I don't really care. The point is that that is an excellent book as well. And the other one is a book which... I put together actually. It's called, but not from, from different articles, on spiritual reading. This book is, um, it speaks about how spiritual reading can be dangerous, people can fall into deception, and how it's important to read the correct books according to the correct level of the person. So that also is, um, I've given this to a lot of people that have read it, people have purchased it, or I've, some, 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 some people I gave away, they said that was an excellent book as well. So we need to know. We don't just go there and go, oh, eeny, meeny, miny. Yeah, I'll get that book. You don't know whether that book is appropriate for you. You might go, oh, there's a book. And then they buy a book which is about someone who eats bread and water. Mm -hmm. And next time they come to the talk, um, they look like um, anorexic or something. And you say, what, what happened to you? You go, oh, I, I read the book and it said that the saint ate bread and water. And I said, yes, the saint ate bread and water because he was holy, right? They said, but um, 
I feel so spiritual. Then later on you find that he found out that he died. <laughs> from malnutrition. So you've got to know what you're reading. There's the program for the next... This, I've decided I'll just put the talks in one list. Because Salam's just... And so there's August the 2nd, which is in three weeks' time. And, then, and we're going to do the Palakas, Mother of God. On September the 6th, will be holy water and prayers for the sick. October the 4th is the paraclesis to the mother of God quick to hear. In other words, it's an icon where the mother of God does miracles quickly for those who ask. And then there's the next one is on Sunday the 8th of November, which will be the memorial service for the dead. So you can pray, we can pray for the dead. But it, and then we're going to do a talk on how to help the dead. And then on Sunday the 6th of December... Um, we're going to be doing a holy unction service, the whole service of holy unction, which is the anointing with the oil, which is usually we do on Lent, but I got permission from the Metropolitan to do it during the Christmas Lent as well because it's very beneficial to do to, for people to be anointed with this oil, this holy, this holy and you have to be orthodox to be anointed because it's a, one of the mysteries of the church. So that's that. Action is thin. Over there. It is true. It is truly me. It is Through the prayers of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, save us. Amen.